Hi everybody, welcome to the Stratosphere Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Whittle, Go Gators, and um, it is the 2nd of February of 2023. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, I am feeling, as usual, a close affinity to um, Ralph Wiggum. Uh, I feel like I ate a jar of paste. I just don't know why. I uh, just, I just feel like gummed up. Uh, so it'll be a pity party tonight for sure. I, that's that's what people find most interesting. I know today in, in society here. Uh, so we're going to spend virtually all of our time on uh, questions, uh, since I don't really have the mental focus to uh, do much of the uh, improvisation and cogitation. That's such a key part of this little adventure. That's good though. It's time to catch up on the questions. Just um, just before we do, let people kind of settle in, get your uh, methadone drips going. Uh, the um, wrapping up script number five of eight. We're shooting. We have a shoot date on March sixth, so it's got to get done. One of the things I'm finding um, is uh, the same uh, same problem I ran into with the Cold War, and that is that. Uh, even though the Cold War, I extended that thing at least three episodes and maybe more than that. <coughs> Excuse me. And when you're looking ahead at what you've got to cover in the remaining episodes, you think, hey, no problem. That should, you know, should be able to get all that done in eight, 9,000 word episode or whatever. And then you start writing the episodes, and I don't know how to d describe this other than to say that the, the, gradu uh, the granularity um, increases. You know you've got to cover a certain number of things in a specific episode, and you got all those things kind of marked out. Then it comes time to actually write it, and you realize there's just so much really cool stuff that you've put together from all these different sources that you just can't seem to get everything that you want to get into an episode. And if you got a limited number of episodes, especially a limited time budget like we do now, what happens is all that stuff gets pushed back we basically just write the thing the way it wants to be written in terms of its granularity. And if it means that this is overlapped uh, uh, what should be in the next script, then you just basically say, all right, well, we'll consider it, we'll move the next script back kind of thing. And in the case of Cold War, hey, Bill, thank you very much, Eric, for that uh, super chat. In the case of the Cold War, um, <laughs> what happened was it was it was 12 and a half really superb episodes. And then, like, the final, I don't know, 10 years of the Soviet Union was pretty much done in, you know, half of the final half of the last episode because it's just time to end this thing. And, 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 a, and a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but enough people were, were um, uh, disappointed by that. So that was the only negative note that I consistently got. And I find I'm in that situation now with the Empire of Terror thing. I'm, I'm about to close out script number five. And um, Lenin is still with us. He's not with us at the end of this episode, but he's still with us. Uh, and, of course, Lenin lived, you know, until 1924. So he was, and, and two of those years, he was a vegetable. So it's taken five episodes to write three years. Uh, and on that scale, you should get this show done in 70 or 80 episodes. Um I am. I have a production meeting tomorrow with the guys, uh, 
And the last thing I want to do is throw them a, a, throw a wrench into this at the last minute. But I'm going to, well, first got to get this fifth script in. But if I do that, and I will, I'll have to do that tonight because I've got a production meeting tomorrow on the phone. I will privately talk to the show's executive producer and see. There had been, I wouldn't even ask them about a, a part two, except that it had been mentioned in passing. And there is already an agreement for me to do an, another set of things. And I don't know what that set of things would be. But I think that would be a really good solution if it's not too late for them. And again, if it's not too late for them, we would then do the first, you know, part one would be in the set of the, um, of the execution chambers. Part two would be in the set of the, of the uh, gulags. Now, while that makes a lot of sense, I'm not 100% sure that I can maintain that granularity for, you know, a second set of six episodes. Um, so that's that's basically it. But in any event, um, I'm going to get this script finished and then I'll present it to them. Uh, I don't think there would be much of a pause. I would take a little pause. I'd, I'd take a week or two off. I don't want to be working on Daily Wire stuff all year. I'm way, way behind on the stuff I need to do for... Um, for our own members and for the animation stuff and all that stuff. So uh, one of the big questions would be at what point would we plan on releasing part two if I can pull this off? And I would assume they'd want to get all of part one out the door and see how it does. But anyway, it, it, I don't want to create a lot of problems for these guys, it's, especially at this late hour. So if that doesn't fly, then I will just... Um, just do that. Uh, Judy wants to know how long each episode is. It's about an hour, yeah. They're coming in at about 9,000 words, something like that. Um, the uh, Cold War episodes, I think, were more like seven, seven and a half, something somewhere in that neighborhood. I don't know. I think they're really good. And even if I have to stick with, you know, plan A and have the second or have the final three episodes be a much smaller, much coarser granularity... I would I would be okay with that because so much I don't think it you know it's almost like this this first part is really the history of the Russian Revolution. Uh, I'd never heard any of these stories before, and um, and I can still I can still get the rest of the history done in three episodes because things kind of settle down. You know I, I mean. All of this turmoil and all of this stuff, all the all these pieces in motion to the revolution. By the time Lenin is is finally kicking off, you've got Stalin more or less on the way up in charge. He's he's still got a decade of having to maneuver, but it's Stalin's ball once Lenin dies. You got the establishment of the secret police. The the Communist Party is now called the Communist Party instead of the Bolsheviks. Um, they've already made the move back to Moscow, so. Everything that happens after this point is a lot more linear than the things that happen up to this point. Uh, one of the things that's funny, this is why granularity is an issue, because I've got all the things that I needed to get done in this episode, and I'm just, I keep finding things that I think are really, really cool. Um, and one of them is very simple. 
and maybe I can show it to you. Um, I did not know this. I did not know this until an hour ago. Uh, I was writing a segment about where they moved the government from um, Petrograd to Moscow for security purposes. And so I'm writing about the Kremlin and how how badly dilapidated it was when they got there and this you know the whole courtyards were filled with horse manure and you know it was not a not a pleasant place nobody really wanted to go there St. Petersburg was designed to be um you know the 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 new capital um and so I was writing about the the Kremlin because they all considered to be a step backwards you, you know you're leaving St. Petersburg was put where it was put because it Peter the Great wanted to become European. He wanted to westernize the thing. That's why St. Petersburg looks so beautiful, because it's designed by French architects on a completely blank piece of paper. I'm looking for a particular image here because I want to just show it to you. It's just pretty amazing. It's here somewhere. I learned a couple things uh, just in the last hour that I didn't really know. All right, I'm going to just look for this. It's worth the wait. Just give me one second here. So, um, excuse me for a second while I put up my spectacles. Uh, where is it? It's just really cool, and 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 I make a point of it, uh, psychologically, uh, point of it too. Whoops. Sorry about the dead air, um, but it's worth it. Yeah, that's it. That's not the one I saw before, but that'll work. This is the one I saw before. Yeah. Okay. Here's something I did not know until an hour ago about uh, about the Kremlin. And this is the this is the granularity issue I was just talking about. So check this out. Up until the end of the 1800s, so maybe you know 30 years before um, the communists moved the capital back, the the Kremlin had for hundreds and hundreds of years been painted white. And you tell me if that doesn't change the whole vibe of the Soviet Union. How many screens am I running? Mostly I'm running two or three. It, the Kremlin's almost unrecognizable painted white. And, and it makes you wonder, because I think there's more than, it's more than just the color of the paint, right? The entire thing about the Kremlin that I'm writing about now is when the Bolsheviks retreated there. And by the way, two days before they moved the capital back to Moscow, they, they named themselves uh, the Communist Party. I've been referring to them as Bolsheviks until that point, but um, because I, I didn't want to call them communists until they were officially called communists. But uh, let me see, I, got a, I think I have another one of them here. The, the vibe, it, it, whoops, the vibe is just so different and, and so much nicer. Here's another one. This might actually be a photograph. Tell me this doesn't look like I mean, this to me almost looks like a like a like a a, a winter 
like fairyland uh, picture here. Here's another one. This is the Kremlin before end of the right up at the very end of the eighteen hundreds. Whoa, 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 whoa! Easy now. I have no idea what caused that to freak out like that. Let's try that again. Um, sorry. Yep. Stay there, you. Come on. It's a little, little. I mean, look at that. Doesn't that, uh, is it just me? Um, doesn't that just give you a completely different vibe about what Russia is? In, in the Cyrillic char uh, characters in the upper left, I don't know the first word, but certainly the second two are Kremlin and 1800. So this wasn't something that happened like thousands and thousands of years ago. The Kremlin was was painted white. And, and the effect, the psychological effect on who the communists were, I just don't think they would have been the communists almost in a way if it if it hadn't reverted back to its original color. Now, for those of you who uh, maybe not up on your uh, latest Kremlin pictures, uh, I'll show you what it looks like not only today, but what it, what it's looked like during the entire run of the Communist Party while it was the empire of terror, the evil empire. It looked like uh, this. Uh, yeah, let me see if I can. Uh, all right, close enough, I guess. You get the idea. So here's the color that it's been my whole life. I did not know that the Kremlin was ever not painted uh, white. I mean, not painted red. Here's, here's the Kremlin today. This is going to be a real small file. You get the idea. Come on. It's a whole different vibe, man. The whole, the whole, like, yeah, here's a better one. The whole, um, the whole thing is just completely psychologically really, really, really different. Come on. All right, you want to be that way with me? That's fine. I can play this game too, you know. And you go away. And you, you're the one I want. Um, don't you think? Anyway, I just thought it was, I just thought it was interesting. Come on, last time. Just, I just want. Uh, you, you're gonna gonna be that way. Okay, fine. Be that way. Up. All right. Anyway, you get the idea. You know what the Kremlin looks like red. So here it is red, and um, and it's a whole different uh, beastie beast. So I did not know that. I thought that was cool. This is the kind of thing that is really great example of the kind of thing I was talking about where. Oh yeah, I got just get this, this, and this. Next thing I know, the Kremlin used to be painted white, and it's like that's actually interesting and kind of cool. Um, so uh, that's why the scripts are running long, and hopefully, I can um, convince them that we should continue along this path. Eric, Eric Blake says, uh, "White Kremlin heaven, red Kremlin hell." Yeah, pretty much. Um, something else I didn't know until uh, today. I don't want to steal from the, the Daily Wire by reading their material in advance, but nevertheless, here we go. Uh, so I knew that the, that the Bolsheviks had been named the, you know, the Bolshevik Party. What I didn't know was the actual official name of what Lenin's party was prior to. They moved, they moved from St. Petersburg or Petrograd to Moscow on March 10th of 1918. On March 8th, just a couple days before they moved, uh, 
In fact, the last thing they did in the old capital, the, the, the communist revolution was birthed in Petrograd. They changed their name in Petrograd to the, um, their official name then was the Russian Communist Party slash, uh, comma, Bolsheviks, where I kind of think now, for the first time ever, that's probably where Python Monty got its, uh, got its thing. But you know what they were called before, um, before they were called the uh, Russian Communist Party Bolsheviks? They were called, their official name prior to that was the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. I'll just read you what I wrote here. I'll just read you one paragraph and I guess they'll take it out of my hide. Two days prior from there, I wrote this 10 minutes before I rolled the intro. Two days prior to the top secret departure from Moscow, the Bolsheviks enacted one of the last decrees that they would issue from the birthplace of the revolution. On March 8, 1918, the party officially gave itself the name that history would remember them by. Prior to that date, Lenin's Bolsheviks had been officially known as the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, a name that had so many of the same anti-totalitarian buzzwords baked in that it sounds remarkably like the National Socialist German Workers' Party, which would be formally instituted as such less than two years later. The National Socialist German Workers' Party would go on to become widely known as the Nazi Party, while the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party would, on March 8th, be renamed the Russian Communist Party, Bolsheviks. The race-based socialists, the Nazis, and the class-based socialists, the communists, would go on to have a lot in common. I thought that was rather good. Um, and I'll just read you one more just for the heck of it. Both of these historical mon monstrosities required the same fuel to keep the incinerators running. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, oh, come on. Come on. What do you burn bodies in? It's not called an incinerator. It's called, um, right out of my head. Uh... Crematoria. So, here we go. Both of these historical monstrosities required the same fuel to keep the crematoria running. Hatred. Hatred and envy. Now, in Germany, that fuel would consist mostly of six million Jews with millions of gypsies, homosexuals, and other socially undesirable elements added as needed. But... In Russia, the rapid degradation, starvation, execution, and death to disease and exposure of the former people, the imperial aristocracy, and the urban upper-middle-class doctors, lawyers, teachers, and merchants known as the bourgeoisie, well, that presented a problem. By the time the communists moved to Moscow, most of them had already been shot, starved, imprisoned, or frozen. For societies like the Nazis and the communists, an enemy shortage is an energy shortage. That is a Bitch in line, gang. That is a that is a freaking great line. A great line. An enemy shortage is an energy shortage. That is that I'm just I just think that's rather good. Um so this is my introduction to the fact now they moved to Moscow, all of the aristocrats, they're old thin old people, right? They're 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 murdered or dead. The bourgeoisie is being hunted down on the streets by the Red Guard. You have to have an enemy to make this thing work, and so that whole paragraph is a prelude to the invention of the next enemy, the communists. I, I there's a line I liked a lot. 
been using for maybe two or three years where I said um, uh, actual injustice is becoming so rare in America. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it's becoming so rare that the progressives have to basically create synthetic injustice, like somebody mispronounced me or called me by my dead name. So since we need enemies and since we don't have, you know, slavery or lynchings or any of that stuff anymore, we've got to come up with synthetic injustice. If there's no racism in a Tea Party movement, we'll make signs that are racist signs. We'll put them in there. We got to we got to create synthetic injustice. And so the, the communists had to create a new enemy. They had to synthesize one out of something that didn't exist before. Lenin had made a lot of promises. He made promises to everybody, including the Germans, put him in power. One of the things he did, even before he took power, was he got the countryside, got the peasants completely lathered up. Sorry, Eric Gotts with a $10 super chat. Envy is the fuel of the fires that burn human ovens. That's the point I'm trying to make. So even before they took power in Petrograd during the October Revolution, Lenin had gotten these peasants so amped up and did an opening scene about this where they just roamed the countryside just trying to murder people and all of this stuff. Um, and once you're not enemies, you're, you're in trouble. So they had to create a brand new enemy out of thin air, something that had never, ever existed before. A, a, a class. They're, they're class-based murderers uh, rather than race-based murderers, murderers. So they had to create a new enemy. And the enemy they created was called the Kulak. Now, the Kulak was an invented term, came about right around this time. Kulak in Russian means fist. What it really means is tight fist. It means a tight wad, like a scrooge. If you call somebody a Kulak, you're calling them a miser, basically. And the Kulaks were the wealthy peasants, what does wealthy, what is a wealthy parent? What is a kulak? Well, if you had a cow, you were, you were probably a kulak, a cow, right? We're not talking about guys who have agricultural uh, uh, installations around the country who are making millions and millions and millions of rubles a year off of the, no. Once Lenin came to power, he said, anybody who hires anybody else is by definition an exploiter, right? So, he basically created this class of, of Russian peasants called the Kulaks. And the Kulaks were people who maybe were rich enough to afford to hire two or three other people during harvesting season. And they were the people who had the nicest log cabins in the village. Right? This is what this is the class that they're going after. Now the reason that they're going after the countryside, the peasants, is because First of all, communism, socialism needs an enemy. So they had to invent one. Secondly, Lenin had promised the peasants, the Russian peasants, they were just peasants before they became kulaks, by the way. Um, he had basically said to the peasants, all the land in the country is going to go to you. That's what the whole revolution's about. And they believed him. So once the land ostensibly went from the landowners, the peasants just rise up and murder everybody and burn down 89 or 90% of the total, um, you know, mansions and houses that the actual landowners lived in. Now he's got all these peasants out there and they're farming their own farmland. And they are selling their product. And this is not good because 
Lenin needs that food for the cities because his system of government is so inefficient that even a country with a kind of agricultural base as Russia, was the only real agrarian nation in Europe, can't feed its own people. So Lenin basically has to have a reason to go out and get that land back from the peasants, the land that he had given them when he liberated them from their, you know, czarist overlords. So he invents this class of people called the kulaks. There were three different classes of kulaks. There were the rich kulaks. These people might have three or four cows and might hire six or seven people. Uh, then there were, were the middle kulaks, and then there were the uh, just the regular peasants. Uh, the regular peasants got the least bad deal. Um, not yet, Dave, I'll get to that. Uh, I'll probably do that in the final 15 minutes of the episode. So you, you've got peasants now who, who don't work for anybody, don't own anything. And by the way, by the way, the reason that somebody might be a, uh, a rich kulak, some, a, a class enemy who has to be killed now, executed, was because the reason that they had a couple of cows or could hire other people, because they were better farmers. They worked harder and they knew what they were doing. So the better farmers got to the point where they had a couple of cows, could hire a couple of other of the less capable farmers, who, instead of being grateful for the job, obviously, spent the whole time filled with envy and hatred. So they were looking forward to this. So you got the, the, the rich kulaks, they're going to be taken off and shot. You got the middle kulaks, they're going to be relocated to places like Siberia, where they'll die mostly of, of exposure. And then the regular peasants, if you think that Lenin was just going to leave them alone there to farm the land and sell it, no. He's going to create these collective farms. So the best thing that could happen to you is you now work for the communists. And that's the best thing that will happen to you. And he went in and started requisitioning grain. And this is the Red Terror, which starved several million Ukrainians. It wasn't the Great Terror. That's still 15 years in the future. He's just warming up. But the kulaks were invented and he sent stalin and 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 trotsky out into the country to start requisitioning grain and requisitioning grain meant we walk into the village with our machine guns all of the all the czechists by the way funny how these two societies are parallel the czechists the secret police russian secret police would dress virtually indistinguishably indistinguishably from the um from the ss or the gestapo they wore long leather trench coats and they wore leather boots and they had leather gloves all in black leather. They were they, they had pistols on their belts and special ornaments on their hats and they just loved to go around and shoot people. Uh, so they didn't just take they didn't just take the grain and the livestock from the from the uh, villages. They took everything, including the seed corn, including all of the all of the grain that they would need to plant the next harvest they took because they needed it now and they thought that well next year's grain is going to be next year's problems so lots of people starved and of all the things that happened during this period to me the one that is the most telling is when it became clear to the peasantry at large of what was happening that the communists were going to come 
in, once once the communists took over, inflation went through the ceiling. Prices were six, seven times what they were prior to the revolution. And when they came to take the cattle and all the rest of it, they offered to pay them the pre-revolution price, which is a sixth of their value. And the peasants said, we're not going to, no, we're, we're, cost of living's got up by a factor of six. We can't sell you this to pre-war prices because we'll all starve. And basically the communists said, well, that's kind of the point. So there was a period there, a couple of weeks, once it became clear that the Bolsheviks, that the communists were going to come and take this stuff anyway, the, res the Russian peasantry slaughtered 70 or 80% of their total livestock across the nation. 80%, something like that, I'll get the exact number, of all of the chickens, cows, goats, anything that was used as livestock was all killed, and it was killed because they weren't going to let the damn communists have it. And the thing that breaks my heart more than anything was that somebody wrote, I'll find the quote, somebody wrote that this was the first time, first and only time in their lives where Russian peasants were actually full. full. When, they, when, they were, when they were full, they couldn't eat anymore. They said it was the first time they ever had greasy fingers. Because all these cattle that they've been raising for generations, they're just going to kill them all. And so Lenin goes to war with his own people. And I got to get that done. And I got to get the, the I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the Russian Civil War down to just a couple paragraphs. It could be done. It, it, it's, it's, it's worthy of an hour, an episode all its own. I just don't find it very interesting because in the grand scheme of things, this is what the, what the communists did to their own people. Um, but Trotsky, who's an intellectual, goes out there, gets in his black leather jacket and his armored train and rushes around the, the, the Reds. I'm going to call that segment uh, the, the next segment in this episode. It's going to be called the Battle of the Five Armies because during the Russian Civil War, it was the Reds, the Bolsheviks, versus three different white armies plus a combined army of the Allies, meaning British and uh, Americans and so on. Five different armies, four against one, and the four white armies, the anti-communist armies, could not get together, couldn't form a grand strategy. They Each one of them operated completely differently of all the others, and none of them had an ideology. They just wanted the Bolsheviks out. The peasants said, okay, well, what, what do you put in its place? Well, I guess we'll go back to the czar or something. Lenin was very lucky in his enemies. That's what one of these authors said. He, 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 there's so many times that he would have been stopped if he'd had anybody competent against going against him. Hey, for two first-time chats from um, average Mike. I hate it when people do this when they try to read my, my name. Average Mike. Ah, I forgot to say Mike. Here we go. Average, average Mike Oxlong twelve says hey there, and then uh, Daff also says meow. So this level of quality uh, that we are that we're talking about here. Joking, we have very um, we have great great people in the comment sections here. So that's the Red Terror. The whites committed atrocities, and so did the Reds, and a lot of people say so. There was no difference between them. I think there was a difference between them. 
the Reds were told to commit the atrocities by the government. The Whites committed the atrocities as a result of their soldiers getting drunk or whatever. There is a difference between these two things. Um, anyway, uh, thank you very much, Monkey uh, Monk in Training. I really shouldn't reveal this much of it. Uh, but uh, I have this episode, episode five, introduces Stalin. And the first episode is called, uh, the first chapter in this fifth script is called The Deadliest Blizzard in History. And, um, and I called it that because young Stalin, who was known as Koba, I've got to get Koba, in, I've got to get Stalin into the history of the Soviet Union somehow. So uh, Koba was his revolutionary name before he became known as Stalin. I've referred to him as Koba for the last five episodes. Uh, Koba's on his last of this. He was exiled to Siberia six times. He just walked back five times. He just walked out. Uh, and on the last one, uh, the longest one, he used to like to go out hunting by himself. He just he liked the fact that, and, and they're, you know, what are the guards going to do? Of course the guards let him have a rifle. Where is he going to go? Are you going to walk out of Siberia? So uh, Tacoba got in the habit of going out, uh, out in the middle of the taiga, and he would come back with partridges or he'd ice fish, that kind of thing. And um, on one of those times, he went out, and it was one of those days where things go south very quickly in terms of the weather. He wasn't dressed terribly warm. He went a long way because he basically, I guess he killed all the partridges near enough to his little exile village. And he found himself a long way away uh, from his camp and this blizzard came on, deadliest blizzard in history came on. All of a sudden things just started to white out and he starts turning around trying to find his way home. Temperatures dropping precipitously and he's having to slug through snow now and a, and, and a blizzard and he's, he can't find his way back to his tiny, tiny, tiny little village. It's, it's, a, it's a whiteout, it's a baran. Almost certainly the, the closest he had come to dying in his life. And that's why I said it was the deadliest blizzard in history. If you look up the deadliest blizzard in history, you'll find the, the Iran blizzard of 1972 killed 4,000 people. This blizzard killed 20 million people. And it didn't kill 20 million people because of how strong it was. It killed 20 million people because if it had been that much stronger, that much, if it had come in a half hour earlier, if it had been two degrees colder, if it had been that much stronger, then Koba would have been killed and his bones would have been scattered into the taiga and his name too, nobody would have ever heard of him. But that blizzard was the deadliest blizzard in history because it was not quite strong enough to kill him. Almost, almost did. He came back in freezing. He came back. I had to warm him up. He would have died if there weren't people back there. That close. So that blizzard killed 20 million people. And, um, and I think that is a, uh, I just think that's a really cool way to tell that story. Thank you very much for that, Angel Raven 444. That's a very kind thing to say. Bill Whittle is the guy that every other country in the world thinks is America. But it isn't, bless you, Mr. Whittle, for your work to dispel uh, disinformation. That's my goal for doing this thing. I, want, I don't want any, anybody who sees this ever, ever, 
to talk about socialism again, you know, ever. Uh, here's a legendary sideburns with a super chat saying, if you could gently nudge one of those people down a flight of stairs, who would it be? I'm kind of inclined to want to go to Marx for that one. Um, Lenin killed at least 7 million of his own people. Stalin killed about 13 to 20 million of his own people. Mao killed 50 to 70 million of his own people. The invasion of South Korea by the communist North, all of those deaths go to communism, which end up on Marx's plate. Same for Vietnam, when North Vietnam attacked the South, all those people, 58,000 Americans on top of them, all the millions of people died in the Vietnam War died because of the communist aggression. All of the people that died in the invasion of Hungary, invasion of Czechoslovakia, invasion of Poland, uh, the, the, what, what Castro did to Cuba, what, what Hugo Chavez did to Venezuela, what all of them did to everybody is at least 100 million people. Cambodia, yes, the killing fields of Cambodia. Mao congratulated Pol Pot by saying, my God, you, 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 turned, you, you wiped out everybody in this country in, in a year. It took me decades. Congratulations. I would, um, I would kick, uh, I'd kick uh, Marx down the stairs. And the reason I would do that, people would say, well, he was historically inevitable. I'm not sure about that. The reason Marxism had the power that it had at the time, the idea of Marxism is still predicated, obviously, on envy and hatred. So that's that's what drives modern people into be calling calling themselves Marcus Marxists, but but the reason that I don't think Marx was inevitable was because he wrote his theories during a relatively small window, 20, 30, 40, 50 years at the top end. Marx wrote about uh, what he what he termed capitalism in the very beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And in the very beginning of the Industrial Revolution, things were not good for workers, right? I mean, there were horrible, horrible conditions. People living in London was, during the early 1800s, was just a special kind. Dickens's London is a special kind of hell. Um, and all of that injustice and, and, and slave wages and, you know, kids in coal mines, all of that stuff. Um, all of that stuff was temporary. The West didn't listen to Marx, and we solved those problems. We solved them with, largely in the part of trade unions, which, of course, the communists banned. Now, I'm not a union guy today. I think union, unions are very destructive today. But I think the EPA is very destructive today, too. But when the EPA was first introduced, I remember when the rivers in America were sterile ponds, you know, and, and the sky was, was black. So, uh, so if he had come in earlier, there wouldn't have been an industrial revolution for him to write about. If he'd come in 20, 30, 40 years later, the conditions would have been improved enough to the point where he wouldn't have gotten any traction. That's, that's who I'm going to go with. Um, Monkey Training says an OSS officer claims he was contracted to kill Patton. If Patton lived, where would we be today? I think uh, it's going to be tough to top my um, admiration for General Patton. But to be honest with you, when the war was over, I think that the best thing that, that could have happened to Patton if he'd lived is he would have gone the way of MacArthur. He would have just simply been, 
would have been too outspoken for the politics of the time, and he would have been would have been killed. I think he just would have been not even cashiered. Right? That's that's Douglas MacArthur's great line: "Old soldiers don't die; they just fade away." And I think that's probably what happened to him too. Um, anyway. Um, uh, Dave uh, asked if I was going to compare this to what modern socialists are saying. Every now and then, every now and then, I, I put in a, a two-sentence paragraph that kind of breaks the fourth wall, and because I think it's like so important to tie this in. I had one of these earlier in this episode. Uh, so there was so, so the Russians had a dream of their own free. Congress, Parliament. And they'd had this dream for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was just an itch, just a tickle in the back of their minds. And then in 1905, the Tsar's troops open fire on Bloody Sunday and kill a lot of innocent people, and nobody believes in the Tsar anymore. And, and it gets more and more and more focused. But by the time you get to uh, 1917, people want representation. They, they want to be, because Europe... Is being is treating their people more like people than animals, and so everybody wanted a free parliament after the uprisings, after the result of uh, Bloody Sunday in 1905. Nicholas II forms a parliament called the Duma, immediately fills it with aristocrats and and appointees of the Tsar. Uh, basically, he says that the Duma can advise the Tsar, but he's not in any way bound to what the Duma says. He's not beholden to them in any way. And then he proceeds to ignore the Duma until his last years when he thinks the whole Duma was a gigantic mistake. So he's, this, isn't, this isn't a Magna Carta. This is just a, a, a sop. It's a rubber stamp thing. So I spend the first three, I know, the second, third, and fourth episodes of this talking about this mystical desire on the part of the Russian people called the Constituent Assembly. And when the first revolution happens in February 1917, the Tsar abdicates, Kerensky comes in and they start making promises. It sounds exactly like the, it sounds exactly like the, the Bill of Rights, what Kerensky was saying they were gonna do. And then they postpone it. it was supposed to be held in, Kerensky takes power and was the government takes power in February. It's supposed to be held in September. He pushes it back to October, which is a week or two before the before the communist revolution, the second revolution, the October revolution. <coughs> but if they'd had the election in September, or even if they'd had it in mid-October, Kerensky's government might have survived because it would have had legitimacy. But he pushes it then back to the end of November, I'm sorry, to the end of October, and there is no end of October provisional government. By the end of October, by the end of October, the provisional government is gone and the Bolsheviks have taken over. And like his promise to the peasants about giving them land, he's promised free and fair elections because he knew the people wanted it. And now that he's got power, he has to find a way to not hold these elections, Lenin, because he knows his Bolsheviks are badly outnumbered. And he basically says, we got to cancel these elections. And his other Bolsheviks say, we can't do that. It look look awful. I say, in the, I say in the script, by today's language, it would say the optics were terrible. Lenin was dead set against it. They finally convinced him to do it. He knew what the results were going to be before they happened. So they have these elections on the 12th of November, uh, less than a month after the revolution. And the communists 
No, the Bolsheviks get 24% of the vote. Uh, the more moderate socialists, the SRs, the social revolutionaries, get like 39% of the vote. And the constitutional Democrats, called the cadets because of the KD initials, get 5% and so on. So he has the election, and he gets wiped out in the elections. He does worse than he thought he would, and he knew that he was going to do badly. So they've got maybe 25% of the total vote in the Constituent Assembly, which means that in the Constituent Assembly, which, by the way, needs to be said, was in fact a an absolutely fair and free election run all across the country, secret ballots, monitored by independent voters. It was, it was everything you could have asked for. Um, and Lenin knew he was going to lose. So they have the election on the 12th of October. They scheduled the first meeting of the Constituent Assembly for the morning of 27th of November, 1917. And on the morning of the 27th of November, the Russian people, especially in Petrograd in the capital, wake up happy. Today's our first day of an actual Congress and a parliament. And what they find is a notification from the Bolsheviks overnight saying that the Constituent Assembly has been postponed for six weeks until January 6th of 1918. Oh, and parenthetically, uh, the Constitutional Democrats are now an illegal party. And if you were, um, if you were a member of the Constitutional Democrats, the cadets, the Red Guard is looking for you. So these guys that thought they were going to work in their first day in Congress start running for their lives because they're being arrested everywhere. And everybody's protesting about all this. And Lenin says, one of the guys says, you know, you, 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 you know, Lenin's complaining about about uh, press criticism. And one of these guys says, how can you claim a, how can you complain about press? press criticism. You've shut down every other newspaper in the country. You've smashed them all. And Lenin turns to him and says, well, not yet, but we'll get to them. So now he pushes it back to January 6th. He, he has made one of the parties illegal and arrested every member of them. Then finally, on the morning of the 6th um, of January, once again, it's time for the first meeting of the Constituent Assembly. People wake up on the morning of the 6th, and it's even more of a shock than it was on the 27th. They wake up to find that martial law has been declared. They go to the building, the Taurid uh, Palace, where the Constituent Assembly was going to have its first meeting. They find the doors are barred and that there are red guards in the way. There's a proclamation saying that martial law was in effect. And then 40,000 citizens of Petrograd get so angry about this, they get so furious at the Bolsheviks that they, the Bolsheviks also issued an order saying that any kind of demonstrations were illegal. So was it January 6th? How did I not make that connection before? I got to double check that. I can't believe I didn't make that connection before. I'm virtually positive it was January 6th. January 5th, night of, the, night of the 5th, morning of the 6th. So 40,000 people march from, from the center of, of Petrograd to where the, where the Constituent Assembly is supposed to meet. And on the way there, these Red Guards appear on the rooftops. The Red Guards open fire, kill 10 people, wound another 70, um, blood on the snow there. And then there's another demonstration outside of the Taurid Palace, the assembly place, where the where the Bolsheviks break up this first day meeting of this of this pot at the end of the rainbow. This is what the Russian people had wanted their entire for, for centuries, right? A, a free a free parliament. So they open up on that crowd with machine guns. Finally, at four o'clock in the afternoon, sorry, 
Lenin gets there around one. He sneaks in through a back door, which is you know guarded by the the Bolsheviks. At four o'clock, they let people into the hall. The first thing they do is elect a guy, Chernyov, social revolutionary. Uh, they elect him as uh, an SR. They elect him as chairman of the assembly. First thing he does is launch into this extraordinarily eloquent denunciation of Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Lenin's sitting up there in the mezzanine trying to act bored, you know, yawning and you know, pretending like nothing's going on, but he's really rolling the iron dice now. Now he's, now he's, this, if they're, if the Russian people are going to rise up, this is going to do it. So somewhere around four o'clock, the, the Bolsheviks um, put together the only motion that the, that the communists ever put in front of a free election in the history of Russia was this one. They said they issued a, 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 a motion to make the Constituent Assembly subservient to Novsarkom, uh, Nov which, which is the Council of Soviets, which the Bolsheviks controlled. The Bolsheviks basically said, this new free assembly of ours is not only going to be beholden to the Soviet, which we control, but they're going to legally ratify anything passed by the Subnovkarm, by the Council of Soviets, which, of course, is voted down thunderously, and the, and the Bolsheviks are outnumbered seven, eight to one, and they're heckling and shouting down people and so on and so on and so on. So long story short, there's a recess. Lenin leaves at around one in the morning. Amazing how much of Russian history happens in the early mornings. Russia, uh, Bolshe, uh, Lenin is sure he's got the thing taped down now. So he leaves around one in the morning, tells his red guards, when the last, don't use violence, but when the last of these people leave, lock the building and do not let them back in until I tell you so. So the final thing goes on until about four in the morning. Four in the morning, the leader of the Red Guards tells Chernoff, you have to go, everybody has to go home now because the guards are tired. And Chernoff says, well, we're tired too. But we can't finish our work now. All of Russia's watching us. So then the guards start playing with their weapons and they start, you know, just kind of sighting down their weapons, big smiles on their faces, you know, at the various members of the assembly. At quarter to five in the morning, the last of the constituent assembly leaves the building. They're told to come back tomorrow for the next session. They come back the morning of the next day. The gates to the Tauride uh, Palace are, are chained. There's a proclamation saying that the constituent assembly has been dissolved and the free Russian experiment in actual democracy lasted for 12 hours. They had not had a chance to cast a fair vote for hundreds and hundreds of years before that and they wouldn't get a chance to do it again for 80 years afterwards. And that prompted me to step out of my narrator's shoes and do what, since this is directly answering a question which came up an hour ago or something, do I ever compare this to modern day? Two or three times so far, I've stepped out of the narrator thing and broken the fourth wall. And I did it for this too. What did I say? It's right here. So Lenin is talking about, yes, it was a risk to have the assembly, but nevertheless, you know, he Lenin had bet the Russian people, when it was all said and done, would bitch and moan, but wouldn't do anything about it. And that's exactly what happened. So this is how I end this, and this is the last free material I'm giving away, at least from this episode. So after this is all over, Lenin's looking back, and he says, yes, it was a risk, a big risk not to put off the assembly, meaning to postpone it forever. Uh, Lenin would later confess to Trotsky, but in the end it was for the best. Dispersing it means the full and open liquidation of formal democracy in the name of revolutionary dictatorship. It will serve as a good lesson. 
Lenin had many more lessons to impart to the Russian people, and he would waste no more time before beginning their education. Oh, by the way, the next time you hear somebody touting democratic socialism, tell them about what happened in Russia on January 5th, 1918. Because those two words, democratic and socialism, do not have the same weight. Historically, at any time or any place around the world, whenever one came into conflict with the other, the socialism locked out the democracy every time. So, yeah, this whole thing is a commentary on what, uh, just, this is what, this is what people do. Oh, uh, last thing, uh, Eric Blake is, is saying uh, something about uh, Tsar Vladimir IV. So, <laughs> so Lenin, after they moved to Moscow, gets shot at and he's recovering in an estate called Gorky. It's not related to Maxim Gorky. It's just a giant estate that they'd confiscated from former people, and Lenin spends the rest of his life there. So he's at this kind of country club just, just outside of the center of Moscow called Gorky. And um, he, uh, th this you do have to give him. He, he did not live ostentatiously. He never surrounded himself by gulled toilets. He never wore uniforms. Led a very simple life. So the staff of Lenin's house consisted of he was there with his wife and his sister. And the staff of this pretty modest house just consisted of two. There was a maid who basically took care of the house and his cook. His cook was named Spiridinov. That was his first name. Strange, unusual first name for, for his cook. Um, but uh, he had a cook named uh, Spiridinov. And, uh, and this was Lenin's personal cook. I don't know what effect having been the cook of the father of communism had upon Spiridonov's son, but I do have some idea about the effect that it had on his grandson, because the guy who was Lenin's cook was named um, Spiridonov Putin. He was Vladimir Putin's grandfather. How about that? Vladimir Putin's grandfather was one of two people that took care of Vladimir Lenin. So, something to think about. This is the kind of thing that makes me write higher level of granu gran granularity than I'd originally thought. Okay, let's get some questions here, why don't we? Um, yep. Yep, Vladimir Putin is the grandson of Lenin's personal I wonder if that has anything to do with his philosophy. Best thing I said about uh, Putin since the um, since the war with Ukraine is that people say uh, that uh, if you look at his history, they'll say uh, that Putin was born in St. Petersburg, but he wasn't born in St. Petersburg. Vladimir Putin was born in Leningrad. And if you don't know that, then you're going to have a hard time figuring out old Vlad. All right, let's see what we got here at BillWiddle.com. We'll take some questions here. Had more to talk about than I thought. I kind of got, kind of got on a little roll there. Forgot about the feeling I just ate a big bag of paste. Okay. Members, forum, 
Stratosphere Lounge questions and more, which is an act of genuine faith, I know, on the part of people that leave questions here, given how few of them I get to. Stratosphere Lounge questions for 2223. All right, let's see what we got. <clears throat> Ian Nolan, uh, Bill, I just listened to your uh, January 26th Stratosphere Lounge section on winning the argument. I agree with pretty much of it, but there's something additional I'm thinking about. I was talking about how you win with the left by kicking away their um, unearned moral authority. For several of the arguments, voter ID and border security, the public supports our side by 70% every time it's polled. We've won the argument, yet we never win the battle on actually getting these items. So while winning the argument is great, somehow that isn't enough. Something is stopping us. Some combination of bureaucracy, the D.C. bubble, the media politicians who would rather prolong than solve the problems. What are we missing? Uh, you're absolutely right about that, Ian. But that's what I was doing the argument clinic for. Yes, I said argument clinic. The public, the public when they're polled, gets it. But they don't, but they don't win the battle of ideas in the marketplace of ideas. And the reason that they might tell a pollster somebody something different than they might say out in public is because in a in a private poll you can say I'm in favor of these things, but you don't want to say that you know at work because you'll be canceled and all the things you'll be called right. So what I was doing with that was trying to show that that none of the arguments that they are using to suppress people's opinions, not only do they not hold water? Every one of them is an intrinsically evil position to take. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about morality. And what I'm trying to do is, is to give people, especially Republican politicians, the way to go on the counterattack, not to walk into these kill boxes of rhetorical traps that, are, that we lose before we even start discussing it, like the pro-choice argument, giving them the pro-choice thing. I mentioned earlier that Lenin was lucky in his enemies. Um, there was a Lenin had a particular schism. You know, had a, he had a he had a sect, and there were all these other different socialist revolutionary groups. And Lenin's party was by far the smaller of the two. They had a number of votes, which the other party won virtually all of the time. But it turns out Lenin's group did win one of these little votes. And since he won one of these little votes, he decided to call himself the Bolsheviks. And Bolshevik in Russian means majority. Now that's just clever, but that's not tragic. What's tragic is the idiots on the other side, the vast majority of people, allowed him to do this. And they became the Mensheviks, which means the minority party. So here's Lenin with this unpopular party. He wins one vote. He says, we're, we're just call us the Bolsheviks from now on. We're the majority. And the actual majority let him get away with it. Okay, I guess we'll, if you're the majority, then I guess we'll be the minority. This is how you end up going to the devil when you're right. So I'm just trying to get this thing into the kind of language that just basically says, you know, says to Lenin, you're not the majority party. You're not even the minority party. You are, you are less than the minority party. There are other parties that have more votes than you do. You are the microscopic party. You're the, you're the Donald Trump is good at this. Um, you're the you're the violence party. You're the you're the intimidation party. You're the cheating party. And I would have given them all these. You can call yourself any one of those. Those would be accurate. But it's not accurate to call yourself the majority party. So we're not going to play that game, Vlad. Uh, and um, 
you know, that's what I would have done. All right, let's see what we got here. Uh, G.K. Masterson. Hi, Bill. You missed this on Thursday. Imagine my surprise. Have you considered getting additional offers to help strengthen your negotiation position for the colonies? I want to keep the colonies on a Monday. Let me see. Can we just, um, can we cut and paste that for Monday? I know across the streams too much already, but I just feel like I need to do better at, at doing that. So, um, if you could just repost that on Monday and then, uh, yell and scream at me until I answer it, that would be what I would strongly uh, ask you to do. Um, Cody Mills. Uh, Bill, what, if any, are your thoughts on Rocket Lab? While we all dearly love SpaceX, Rocket Lab is the only other launch provider consistently lobbing mass into orbit, not to mention that it's been built from the ground up, not by a billionaire of Blue Origin or Virgin Orbiter Galactic, and yes, even SpaceX. Do you think it will have a lasting future or will it be eclipsed by its older and more well-funded competitors? The best thing in the corner at the moment is that it's now launched from wallops here in the U.S. and will receive ample orders from Space Force, etc. Competition breeds innovation and right now it seems that Rocket Lab is the only competitor of SpaceX. Can't wait to see what comes from it. Um, my major criticism of Rocket Lab is that there aren't 50 of them. Um, yes. Nothing would make me happier than to have a uh, viable, energetic competitor to SpaceX. Uh, I haven't seen any signs of SpaceX fossilizing yet, but it's inevitable. It's not, it's not like it may happen or it may happen if Elon Musk goes. It is going to happen. IBM gets fossilized. Lockheed gets fossilized. Boeing gets fossilized. It will, but there will come a day where SpaceX will be the dinosaur refusing to innovate because that's how things go. It's how people are built. The first generation, you know, the Howard Hughes's or the or the Clyde Cessnas or the, you know, or the Lockheed brothers or, or Northrop or any of these guys, these people are innovators. The second generation are managers and the third generation are administrators. And so, yes, I think they're awesome. And, uh, and, and I had uh, something really surprised me. A long talk with Bert about this, Bert Rutan. Just didn't seem to make intuitive sense to me, but as usual, he's right and he's got his numbers and his, all his figures in order. Bert thinks the best way to, to kickstart any industry is through prizes. He said there's no better investment or, or uh, incentive is probably a better word than a prize. Uh, the first privately owned space program was, was the Spaceship One project uh, that Bert basically had in mind. He Bert, Bert's clear on this. 2004, this thing actually made the flights, but he said in a year or two prior to that, I'd watch the space shuttle go around. Nobody was doing anything. He mentions this very, very clearly. He's just got a great speech on this. He said during the 60s, I think it was, he asked, once he asked me this, it's a great honor to be asked a question like this from Bert Rutan. He said, how many independent launch systems were created for American launch systems from the beginning of the space age to the end of the Apollo program? How many different launch vehicles? I'll do it now because I got the question. I missed one last time. I'll probably miss more than this, but off the top of my head, Mercury Redstone, Mercury Atlas, Gemini Titan, 
I want to say Jupiter 1, Saturn 1, no, I think things that actually flew, you know, that, that may have launched people. So uh, Saturn 1B, Saturn 5, uh, I'm missing a bunch of them. I got them all last time. And the one I missed, maybe it was six or seven, but the one I missed was, and Bert just sitting on this, he could watch this little twinkle in his eye waiting to drop this on you because he knows you're going to miss it. And when he tells you, you know, you're going to beat yourself up for it. So I go through all these things, Saturn 5, Saturn 1B, all these other things. And I said, I, I, I think that's it. He says, you're missing one. I said, what am I missing? He says, you're missing the uh, LEM. The LEM was a launching pad. The LEM was a two-stage rocket that was a launch system from the moon. I said, oh, Bert, you bastard. So all of that to say that he was, he was so frustrated that all of those launch systems have been flown and tested in the space of 10 years that he just got sick of watching it and decided to go start his own space program. And he needed some money to do this. So he went to Paul Allen, who I don't know Paul Allen, needless to say, I didn't know him. But there's something about Paul Allen that strikes me in the same way that Elon Musk strikes me. And that is that there's something about him that doesn't seem as reptilian as Bill Gates or or, or um, Zuckerberg or, or, you know, Soros or any of them. There's something human about um, uh, Paul Allen that Elon Musk shares. And one of them is he, you know, put up the money for the Rock and Roll Museum. The second thing he did was put up the money for, uh, was it Kestrel or Petrol? I can never remember. He's gone out and found, um, I don't know, 25, 30 World War II shipwrecks, USS Hornet. He found the Johnston. He found the found the Samuel B. Roberts. He found the Musashi. He just did it. Cost money. He went out and did it because he wanted the history. Um, so um, so uh, Paul Allen said, okay, Bert, yeah, it sounds good. Let's do it. No, Dave Olson says the wrong Microsoft executive is dead. Yeah, you got that right. Um, so, um, so what happened was there was a $10 million prize the X Prize. And the $10 million went to the first company, the first competitors that were able to cross the Kármán line, uh, which is 318,000 feet, I think, 70, was it 50 kilometers, 75 kilometers? I don't know. In real units, it's 318,000 feet. And the prize would go to whichever company could cross that line and then use this, because this was about reusability, it wasn't about a one-off. Could you cross the Kármán line and then do it again within two weeks with the same vehicle? In other words, could you turn your vehicle around and reuse it? That's what they were awarding the prize for. And it had to be able to carry three people. And you're not going to carry three people on an experimental plane, but so they basically carried ballast. They carried the equivalent weight of three people. 328, sorry, heretic, you'd think I'd know that. Um, uh, and that means Bert's tail number was 328 Kilo Foxtrot, I think, for 328,000 feet. Um, anyway, when he talked to Paul Allen about this, he said, I think we got a good chance to win the X Prize. Paul said, okay. 
Now, I don't know what Paul put into it, um, but it was certainly more than $10 million, probably close to 15 or something like that. But the ability to recover some of your money took, put a lot of people into the game. because Some people were claiming they could do it for less than the cost of the price, right? So the prize generated an awful lot of innovation. Here's the thing about Paul Allen that don't many, many people don't know. Another reason why I have a lot of admir uh, affection for him as a human being. So, so they do, they do, I, I think I got this right. They do one flight that actually crosses the Kármán line, crosses 328,000 feet. Mike Melville is the pilot. We have now taken the first private citizen into space. So that has been done. But more than two weeks, if I remember this correctly, forgive me, Bert, if I don't, but I think this is how it worked. So that flight happened, but that wasn't part of the X Prize flights. That was just to show Bert that he could do it. So more than two weeks pass, right? Getting all their ducks together. And then they're going to do these two flights. And they have to happen within two weeks in order for this prize to, 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 to go on. Oh, and by the way, Part of the requirements for the, <laughs> I just love this, part of the requirements for the X-Flight uh, to win the X-Prize was you had to have the crew go up and come back down within two weeks, and then the crew members had to live for 48 hours after landing, something like that, right? Which basically meant you can't kill these guys in the process of doing it. They can't come back dead, and they can't come back with a heartbeat and die two minutes later. I always thought that was kind of fun. So here's the thing about Paul Allen that I really admire. After they'd done the first flight, right, before they went to go and get the X Prize money, the $10 million to pay Paul Allen back for the 15 or whatever he put in, Paul Allen, on his own initiative, called Bert up and said, Bert, maybe we shouldn't fly these missions. What do you mean, Paul? You've just built the first privately owned suborbital spacecraft. You've just done everything that we wanted to do and started all this other competition and stuff. I want to see space. This is Paul Allen talking. I want to see Spaceship One in where it belongs in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. So I think we should retire the program and just forget the $10 million. That is just cool. So Paul Allen basically said, we did what we said we we're going to do. I don't need the $10 million. Let's just, let's just, you know, let's go home with our winnings. And, uh, and Bert said, that's extraordinarily kind of you and generous of you. But we built this vehicle to, for this mission, and that's what we're going to do. So, What a cool thing to say. Huh? Uh, because Bert Rutan is a genuine genius, he needed something that was slick and aerodynamic on the way up and draggy as possible on the way down. He didn't have the money or the budget or any of that stuff to build it out of titanium, which meant you would have had to have a whole so much more thrust. So he built it out of carbon fiber, which is very light. But the problem is, is that carbon fiber is not going to withstand normal re-entry temperatures. That's why the X-15, which was a suborbital space plane, was, had a titanium nose and, and, and cost a fortune. And so Bert decided to break the airplane in half yeah, thank you very much for that, Jay uh, Coulter, J.B. Coulter. I said, take the W, Bert, take the win, take the win, go home. Um, but 
Burke didn't have that kind of money, and that wasn't his philosophy. He didn't want to go heavy. He wanted to go as light as possible. So he needed something that was slick on the way up because he's going to need all of the minimize, he's going to need minimize drag as much as possible to get it above the, the Carmen line with the engine he's got. But at the same time, he wants something coming down that's extraordinarily draggy. So what he does is he basically splits the airplane in half so the tail feathers go like this. So it goes up like this, gets up into space, cranks itself. That means that it comes down. It, it flat plates down. It produces the entire bottom of the Spaceship One is just drag. And the reason he had to do that was he had to keep the speeds low enough because if he didn't, the temperatures would get so high. If he comes down at a higher speed in a slick, in a vehicle that's as slick going up as it was on the way down, then the temperatures are going to be so high that the carbon fiber won't be able to take the heat. I think he said that the temperature on Spaceship One never exceeded two or two, 200 degrees, 220, something like that. That's a, that's a, that's a smart boy, smart boy. Um, so yes, uh, Ian, I'm, uh, Cody, rather, I'm 100% in favor of them and everybody else. I think the guys who are trying to, wrote, the guys who are trying to uh, sling something into space are really pretty cool too, you know? Yeah, there's a, the Easy Bake Oven is done. I've got my um, my brownies already. <laughs> Jacob Belchuk, nth time asking, can't honestly remember. Well, uh, that's uh, that's stuff I, I don't want to hear, so let's get it on the nth occasion. Heard the claim floated around a few... And sorry to keep you waiting, Jacob. Heard the claim floated around a few times that a properly healthy society requires a balance of left-leaning and right-leaning ideas to function best. What are your thoughts? Are there any ideas of the left that don't deserve a hot date with a flamethrower and a lengthy retirement on the ash heap? The argument is correct. There has to be, and it's correct for the same reason that, that you know, that you want a rocket lab, right? You, if, if you, you can have the most pure intentions you could say okay ronald reagan is is you know president or whatever and and you got a congress consisting of nothing but the most conservative people they write this constitution ironclad law all the rest of this stuff you still suffer from the same um character flaws that rest of humans do and if you don't have opposition and if you're constantly not testing your ideas and defending your ideas then you will become as corrupt as the democrats and as lazy and as stupid as most of the people that the Democrats have diseducated. So I don't want a conservative press. I want a fair press. I want a press that goes after all politicians, not just some politicians. So the idea <coughs> of, um, of having progressive and conservatives in a constant state of, I don't want to say conflict, but um, competition, is good. We, these names change so often, but the best thing I've, you know, the only real name that holds up across history is there are individualists and, and, and collectivists. That is more or less universal. But when people say you're a conservative, what are you trying to conserve? The answer is I'm trying to conserve liberalism. We're trying to conserve classical liberalism. Private property was a radically liberal idea when it was first promoted. So was freedom of speech. So was so was the um, the um, 
in a, you know the 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 you you are not legally required to testify against yourself all of these ideas that the that the founding fathers came up with were considered liberal ideas because they were they were liberating liberal new ideas and so when you talk about private property individual rights individual responsibilities those are classically liberal ideas and the left is not about these things they're antithetical to those things which is why they don't try to call themselves liberals anymore and i certainly david horowitz convinced me of this i never if i refer to them as liberals it's because i've made a slip i always call them progressives always so in terms of the present whether there's any ideas on the left that require you know a flamethrower there are certainly fewer of them I think if you have a, I think it's valuable to have people that are that are radically on on some side of the argument if for no other reason than to show you where the boundaries are right so in California, there's undoubtedly a group out there now that's pushing for full human rights for broccoli. Okay, I'm not down for that. But if somebody's that far out on the outside, then, then they are essentially taking the conversation to a place, well, what, what should get full human rights? They don't even believe humans should get human rights, but you get the idea, right? The problem is, is that they are is that they is that the press amplifies what they say and 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 shuts down the other side of the argument if we had um if we had a uh a fair press we'd have a much happier society and i think there are a lot of things that conservatives people who i would consider my i'm I, i'm a conservative an american conservative there are some some small number, I think, aspects of the things that we generally believe in that probably could stand some challenging. Um, and only stand some challenging not because I think we're wrong, but because we're not at the heart of it. And, and we need to be. I'll take one from history, recent history, and that's gay marriage. On one hand, the conservative in me says, I have no business telling other people what to do with their personal lives. It's none of my business. I don't care. Right? We're not even going to get into the whole, you know, trans thing and forcing some people. Just just that standard traditional argument. We we're born this way, we can't change it. We don't want to be discriminated against. We just want to be able to get married like everybody else, have the same legal rights and so on. That appeals to me on a lot of levels in terms of my political views about being left alone. That's what I think conservatism, conservatism is, being left alone. Now, the other side of the argument is, is, that, is that a lot of things erode the moral foundation upon which the country and, and the entire idea of freedom is, is based. Now, that's a legitimate argument as well. And so when you have things like this that are basically contradicting each other, now you have now you now you're at the, actually at the heart of the issue, right? And and now you're stuck with um, you're stuck with the with the real world, you know, as a bad choice and, and a worse choice. What I have found, to their credit, to their I think to their to their great credit, is that large numbers, large numbers of homosexuals 
gay men, lesbian women, and actual trans people are coming out very, very strongly against this trans activism because they are saying that what the trans activists are doing now with the with the drag shows for kids and all the rest of it and talking about you know sexual identity in, in second grade, all of that. What homosexuals, lesbians, and actual trans people are saying is you are you are you are making the larger population, the straight population, you are giving them the evidence that we are everything that we denied being because we're not. You are basically saying you're making us look bad. You're making us look real bad. And and so, you know, there you go. Steve Young says, can you hold two thoughts in your mind simultaneously? This is the this is the mark of an educated person, right? Can you can you see two sides of an issue? You don't have to double think yourself into agreeing both of them. If they're antithetical views, then you can hold both sides of them in your mind and do what we're doing right now, which is trying to weigh, um, trying to weigh the pros and cons and whether it's it's a policy. So now you're at a point where you say, okay, let's grant that both of these premises are true. That that gay marriage reduces. Uh, essentially defines traditional marriage out of the picture. A lot of this argument, like I said, has, has been over for a while, but I think one of the most compelling things about the anti-gay marriage argument was to say, look, you are, you are redefining what marriage is. You can have whatever civil unions you want to. Most people were at this point. You have all the legal protections and so on, but you're, you are undef you are defying marriage out of existence. And uh, and the opponents to this said, no, we're not. I can I can be a man and have a husband. I can be a, a lesbian and have a wife. Well, whether you like it or not, that's what ended up winning. Um, and if that had stayed there, if that had stayed there, then then they would have been right. And I would have been able to say I was right by saying, leave them alone. I don't want people telling me what to do with my life. I can't tell them what to do with their life, even if I don't like it, especially if I don't like it. But what's been happening is, is that it has in fact been a slippery slope where, where the acceptance of one thing that, that was, that was well-reasoned and well-argued that came with a lot of potential damages, society took that road and some of the damages that people who were against it said were going to happen are in fact happening, right? And and, and mobile modal is right on this particular issue. I really think that I think that this is a false. I think the whole thing was a false issue because because what the whole fight was about was legal recognition. In other words, could you or could you not get a marriage? license. And I think the answer to this argument is the entire idea of marriage licenses is just plain evil, has never been that way up until shortly after the Civil War. It's Democrats that brought in the idea that the state has to approve your marriage. Marriage licenses became a thing because after the Civil War, the Democrats wanted a legal way to prevent black people and white people from marrying each other miscagenation, I think was the term, right? So they basically pass laws that saying in order to get married, it's not just a religious issue. Now, now you have to come to the state and get permission to get married. And we will withhold that permission if we don't like who you're, who you're marrying. 
So on some level, the argument should, that, that entire problem shouldn't have existed. In, in my opinion, you should say, okay, my church believes that homosexuality is a sin and we're not going to marry you. But if you can find another church that says, hey, welcome aboard, that's their business, right? That's your business. But it became about legal rights, and, and then it became about civil rights, and, and it became about the conflict between kind of a, a traditional morality versus a, which is a traditional morality. It's a, it's a traditional morality because it is aware of dangers that have existed throughout the course of human civilization versus the fundamental, fundamental concept of a free society. So um, there you go. Uh, and, and, and what has happened is both things have happened. The huge majority, huge majority of gay people who are married mind their own effing business and are not a threat or a danger to anyone. In fact, are, are some of the people who are most loudly leading the charge against these, this new generation of progressive activists who are crossing lines that should not be crossed under any circumstances. But it also did open it up to this whole thing. By the way, one of the things that, that, that uh, gays and lesbians are so, are so angry about with the trans movement is not just the drag queen, you know, story hour and, and, and all of that, uh, you know, shrooming that's going on. They're also angry at the, at the current trans movement, not, not actual trans, I'll get to that in a second. They're, they're angry at them because they're trying to define away what woman or man means and, and gays and lesbians are saying that's the entire reason we fought for these things in the first place. To say that there's no such thing as a woman or no such thing as a man, what does that do to me as a lesbian, right? That kind of thing. So, so the lunatics have piggybacked upon people who were not crazy. You can argue about whether or not it was worth the risk morally, but they weren't nuts. And virtually all of them, I've been, look, I, I started working in the Players Theater at Miami Museum of Science. I was ushering for them when I was 14 or 15. I've been around gay people pretty much constantly since then. In fact, there's several of them at my house waiting for me to come home right now. Um, so, so I've seen I've seen gay people that I like and gay people that I don't like. The same with straight people and so on. In my personal opinion, the right to be left alone is more important than the collateral damage that comes from loosening the definition of the most important part of our society. Now. I may be wrong about that. And I'm very curious to know, very curious, it's, it's something that's unknowable, but I am very curious to know if this current trans insanity, Dr. Levine being woman of the year, uh, you know, biological swimmer winning uh, all these, uh, biological males competing in all these things, all of the, you know, women's, uh, trans guys in women's sports, the whole movement, the whole thing. I'm curious to know whether or not that, whether that could have happened with or without gay marriage. I genuinely don't know the answer. I know a lot of people say, oh yes, it could never, never have happened. I'm not sure. I don't know. But my point is to answer your question, 
about whether or not there should be left or right leading ideas is this kind of discussion keeps both sides honest. It doesn't allow you to run off into your own echo chamber with the certainty that you're right, because you may not be right. Um, and at the and, and not only that, it, it not not only does it get you thinking about fundamental ideas, it also gets you in the habit of disagreeing with people without demonizing them. And disagreement is what this whole country is all about. The reason we invent everything is because we're we're just a a reactor of conflict. That's that's why we work. The best thing I ever heard was uh, well, not the best thing I've heard, but something certainly impressed me was somebody. You know, it was a real simple thing. Might have been might have been Mark Twain. I wouldn't be surprised. But somebody said. The only reason that we have horse races is because of differences of opinion. Yeah, that's that's really it, right? That's it. That, that's only reason there are horse races is because I think one thing and you think something else. And now we're going to find out which one of us is right. Hard to say. Um, but so to answer your question specifically, Jacob, the idea of left and right in in a state of tension is is good because some new things do need to happen and some new things need to, I think for the best of betterment of society, some new things should take place and you have to pull people who are against any kind of change. You don't have to pull anybody. I'm just saying, ideally, there are some things that we should be thinking about doing, like cleaning up the environment. Some people you have to try to persuade to move, right? But there are other things that are new that that we shouldn't be doing and 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 so the, the the winning sweet spot is some people you need to try to get them to change on things that are worth changing and other people you need to stop getting them to try to change if it's not worth changing not every change is good in fact most change is not good in, in terms of biology i don't know what the ratio is but the but the percentage of mutations that cause death or or immediate extinction are far 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 higher than the number of mutations that actually are advantageous for the for the for the creature. So, um, uh, what did I see there? Uh, so, uh, Rich B three uh, thirteen says, um, "So, how do you feel about Dave Rubin? I like Dave Rubin. I think Dave Rubin's a good man. I think he's an. I think Dave Rubin's an intellectually honest guy. I don't agree with him about everything, and I don't expect to. I don't agree with anybody about anything. Uh, I, I did one interview with Dave many years ago." I want to say it's God, it's got to be seventy years ago now. No, maybe less, because I'm pretty sure Natasha was there. But it was early, so six years ago, something like that. And he was considerably more liberal then than he is now. And I was, you know, a little better known then, so I was like the conservative guy. And he said, and he had like water out there or something. And he said, if that were vodka, you know, would you would you drink it? And I sat down and knocked it back, you know. It's not vodka, you bastard. You shouldn't be teasing people like that. He was amazed that I drank it without, you know, putting up a fight. Um, the thing I got out of that, the thing I remember about that interview with Dave Rubin was, after we talked for about an hour, I said, you know, Dave, we both kind of said, we could take 10 of your closest followers and 10 of my closest followers, go into a room 
and come out with a political platform in about an hour, certainly in, in, in an afternoon. We could come out with a political platform that 85% of Americans would agree with wholeheartedly. And he said, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, Lori uh, Flukler says, that being said, how do you feel about me? I, I don't know you, Lori, unless it's a pseudonym. Uh, however, you seem like a perfectly fine person. And, and we had a big moment, was it last week? We got into some argument about something and somebody said something or other and then they apologized and I just said, I, I actually started to get a little weepy. Um, so, you know, uh, there's a, I'll, I'll just trot this one out. There is a quality about conservatives that I, I think needs, that I think would be helpful. I like all of you. No, you, sorry, I couldn't read it. Clay, Clay Bradley, I don't like you at all. So I've met you, and, and I know I know the kind of person you are. So you I don't like. Everybody else seems to be lovely. But you are a shockingly horrible individual. Um, so so here's, here's what I was getting at. Um, like in terms of what things would I do to change conservatives. I would like it if conservatives didn't have a knee-jerk reaction against uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Club, but let me put this a little more succinctly. Several years ago, before I met Natasha, I went to see Cirque du Soleil show in Las Vegas. It was the Michael Jackson show, which is, of all the Cirque du Soleil, Cirque du Soleil shows, the one I wanted to see the least. I've told the story before, but it, it, it bears telling again. So I'm sitting here in the audience, and now I've got this kind of special Venn diagram thing that occasionally is very useful for me. I've got a good engineering background. I've got a good theatrical background, right? I fly experimental airplanes, and I also know what a, a appropriate font would be for a certain subject. So we're watching this Cirque du Soleil show. And unlike the other Cirque du Soleil shows, which is just plain astonishing acrobatics, in this one, there were a number of examples, but in this one, there was a, you're watching the stage and everything's dark. And since your focus is on the stage, you don't see what's going off on the sides. So the stuff on the main stage goes down and then pop, 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 these spotlights hit like eight or nine maybe maybe five and five on the wall and in every one of the spotlights is a is a guy dressed up like michael jackson they all looked exactly like michael jackson you know with the glasses on and the the hat you know that whole kind of you know bad period and they start playing i don't know billy jean or something like this and then all of these 10 michael jackson uh i don't want to say impersonators actors dressed like michael jackson all 10 of them start to moonwalk up the wall. They're doing the moonwalk perfectly, but they're going up the wall. They're, you look across the room, you see Michael Jackson just walking backwards up the wall. That's fantastic. It was just tremendous. Like, holy crap. And the second I saw that, I, I said, all right, so how are they doing this? Uh, okay, so let's see. Okay, so guys, okay, so you can tell, there's probably a harness right there on their waist. Right, it's got to be somewhere near the center of gravity because otherwise they're going to just tip over. So they're going to need to probably add a little bit of center of gravity, put a little bit of pressure on their back feet so that will give them essentially a gravitational type of a force against the wall. So you probably want to mount it a little bit higher than your center of gravity to push you back a little bit. And then, 
and then they're walking backwards and they're doing it at different rates. So there's obviously computers that are determining. The very, so, so I had it all, all figured out, right? Had it all figured out. Um, and and then I realized, and I could, you know, looking for the wires, right? Where are the wires to make this thing happen? And I realized that um, this is one of the things that I would change about conservatives. Conservatives are very practical people. And we know that people cannot walk upside down up walls. We know it's impossible to moonwalk up a wall. So the second we see this, we immediately want to know how are they doing it? What engineering skills that I would have as a conservative would I need to employ in order to make this thing that looks impossible possible? That's our, that's our immediate automatic response to this is my automatic response what oh okay so they gotta be so and, and what you end up doing is you take away all the magic away from this right it, it no longer becomes something of wonder now it becomes a, a, a it's like a, a an exam question yeah Loyola says you kind of forget to enjoy the show and so I, I thought this was rather pithy I said if I could the one thing I would do to to I think help conservatives lead a fuller life would be to teach them how to not see the wires, right? Not how to see the wires, how to not see the wires, how to not see the wires and just sit back and let it hit you. We're not gonna ask you to come out of here believing that people can walk up walls, but while you're in the theater, just let it go. And I think we're like that because we see that so much manipulation, emotional manipulation is going on. The second we see something that's, you know, the left thinks you can print money forever. That's impossible. Well, so let's figure out why, right? Well, yeah, it's like, okay, that, that is a breathtaking thing to see. And you shouldn't destroy it by trying to figure out how it happened. We're not progressives. We don't believe that people can actually walk up walls. Some of them do. We don't believe that. But, but we should be able to lower our um, intellectual defenses under certain circumstances for our enjoyment. And we get emotionally manipulated so often that we're afraid to deal with anything that deals with emotions now. And we can't we don't want to make an emotional argument. We've got to use facts and figures. That's what they do. They make an emotional argument. You didn't get teary when you see, when you see veterans parades? You see guys walking down the street with a flag on 4th of July? It doesn't make you kind of tear up a little bit? I stood at a, um, stood at a flight demonstration for the F-22 in Oshkosh, I think, 2013 or something. Or maybe earlier. I think it was earlier because Iraq war was still going on. And I saw this thing coming around the corner and just pull up a 9G turn. And um, and it, uh, it, you could hear the jet ripping the air to shreds. Sounded like somebody was tearing canvas. Just, it wasn't the sound of the engines. You could just hear the air just being ripped apart by this thing. And then instantly down comes that, uh, that, um, that uh, what is it, JP, I thought it was JP7, it's JP9, now jet fuel, kerosene smell, burn kerosene smell. I'm standing here next to a complete stranger, and I just look at this guy, and he looks at me, he goes, that's what freedom sounds like. I said, yeah, that's what it smells like, too. And we're just like teary-eyed, just watching just the freaking sheer magnificence of what free people are able to do. And... Um, and that's an emotional thing. And if you're not willing to use that, you're going to lose. Anyway, uh, 
Jacob, I'm sorry that we had to go to the nth time to get that, but I'm glad we did finally get it. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Road Rider. Did a lot of talking about Roadrunner and Coyote recently. I watched a bunch of those. I actually watched a bunch of those on the iPad. I'm talking about Roadrunner and Coyote either last Monday or I, but recently. And so I just thought I'd tee up a couple of them. And I watched them. I hadn't seen them for 20 years. And, I, and, and it just made me laugh out loud. Just It was just laugh out loud funny. And, and the thing that almost always get me, I'll get to you in a second here, Road, uh, road Rider. But I think the thing that constantly made me laugh now that I'm old enough to really break it down is you'd see the boulder coming or whatever catastrophe is about to happen. And they would always do this one super quick cut where you'd see the coyote looking up at the sink and he knew he was boned, right? He just knew it. That reaction shot is what made me laugh all the time. It was just that kind of, uh, okay, this thing's going to be good. Um... So, Roadrider, you've said uh, recently, and I'm paraphrasing here, that you often don't listen to other commentators, podcasts, or radios so that you be sure your original ideas you put forth are actually your own. You'd mentioned Tucker Carlson in that segment, and in a past right angle, you'd also mentioned Dan Bongino. The question, are you missing out on important news or insightful comedy by hold, a commentary by holding to your principle of not listening to other commentators if you still say no? Why? Given that hard news outlets are hardly news, but often collections of written opinions swaying pieces, where do you turn to get information? In other words, who do you trust? Other than Glenn Reynolds, whom you often state as the source of some uh, info you comment on, and Steve Green and Scott. Uh, I go almost exclusively to Instapundit, and Instapundit links to primary source news. So I'm not listening. I don't go to Instapundit to hear what Glenn has to say about the news. I go to Instapundit because Glenn has a well-deserved 20-year reputation for selecting stories that are not only of interest to me, but they're also highly credible sources. Uh, and, I, I, and I happen to like what he says about them, but that's not why I go there. So usually I scan into, before I was working on this and never-ending story, uh, I used to scan Instapundit two, three times a day. One of the reasons I don't listen to a lot of other commentators is I don't have the time. Um, I do find that I listen to them more often uh, lately on YouTube because somewhere around a year ago I realized I could listen to YouTube videos in my car on the drive home. That that was a mental breakthrough of the first order that most people figured out 20 years earlier, but I can be a slow learner sometimes. So then I would tee up stuff. My drive home is probably 10, hour, 10 minute drive home, something like that. And that's about the same length as some of these things. Um, I ended up listening to a lot of Mark Dice because his 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 shows are in about that segment, about that, about that time period. Uh, lately, been listening to Odin's Men nonstop, and now to um, to the Offensive Tranny, who I mentioned before. That's my favorite channel now. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this, I will just say uh, because it's an odd thing to say. Odin is great at making fun of these TikToks. I mean, there are a couple times, usually at least once a day. He does, And by the way, he puts out like four a day. I don't know how he does it. But usually at least once a day, I'll, he'll say something that'll come so far out of left field, I'll just laugh out loud. But Marcus at the offensive tranny is giving me a perspective on this thing that I'd never 
ever imagined before. So here's the story of the offensive tranny. It's, that's the name of the YouTube channel. When you turn him on, it looks like a fairly soft guy, right? You look at him, it's like this term that we would use back in the day amongst each other. So everybody just keep your shirt on, you know, but I would work with my graphic designer, Buster, who's a straight guy. I'm a straight guy. And he would say, what do you think about this? And I'd say, oh, Buster, I don't know. It seems a little art fag to me. And he'd say, okay, got it, you know? And and so he looks like he looks like a kind of a graphic designer, a little a little bit too much soy, you know? But he, but he comes off as just kind of a soft, kind of effeminate-looking male. But this is really critical. He He doesn't have... He doesn't have, he comes off as a soft male. He doesn't come off as a, like, a lot of gay men will over, I mean, like, really turn it up to 30, overdoing the feminist, the fem, feminine isms, not feminist isms, feminine qualities. They'll, they'll, they'll do the whole thing, you know, and he, he's not doing that at all. He just comes across as a guy who's probably not spent too much time, you know, out there gutting, you know, bears. And the reason I got hooked on this channel was because it said trans man reacts to something or other, and I didn't have anything else teed up, and I was driving, so I just listened to it. Um, so uh, what what really got... Oh, my God, we got a rating party. So, hey, uh, hi, everybody who's just coming in on uh, on Twitch. I'm talking about my, uh, my new favorite uh, channel on YouTube. It's called uh, The Offensive Tranny. I was just setting this up. Uh, I stumbled on it by accident after listening to Odin's Men, and if you're one of the raiders here, you might want to check this out. So there's a, a YouTube channel that's become my favorite channel now, favorite du jour, called um, Defensive Tranny. And when you look at it, it looks like a fairly feminine guy. Uh, 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 he's not gay. He's not acting flamboyantly gay. He just seems like a, you know, like a relatively soft urban guy. So... I saw the introduction to one video. It says trans man comments on so-and-so. So I thought, okay, let's listen to yet another person telling me about how, you know, transphobic I am because uh, I don't believe, as Odin says, because I don't worship the female penis, right? So I, I, I turned this thing on, and, and just by sheer luck, I guess, the first thing out of this guy's mouth is, look, I'm a transsexual. I am a biological woman with a serious mental health condition. You're, what? What? That has the ring of truth to it. And, and he just goes on. I'm going to call him he because, because he comes off as a he, and, and this person's deserved my respect. And in fact, my admiration. And, and this, this Marcus just starts talking about the whole trans issue from the point of an actual trans person. See, here's the point that he keeps making. He says, when I made the decision to transition, I did it because I have a severe mental illness called body dysphoria, and it made me perpetually uncomfortable. So as an adult, I decided that I was going to do something about this. He's telling his own story. I'm paraphrasing enormously, obviously. He said, but look, when I started to transition, I kept going to the woman's restroom for years and years because I didn't, I could not convince myself that I could pass as a man and walk into a men's 
restroom without making people uncomfortable. And I, uh, it's called the offensive tranny on on uh, YouTube. And and the point that, that that Marcus was making was I have enough respect for normal people to not make them uncomfortable. I wasn't going to go to the other restroom unless I could walk into that restroom and not cause anybody any sense of disturbance or discomfort. I go into the booth, I do my thing, I come back out again. And and he, he said he waited for years until he got that point. And that got my respect, especially given the 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 what the current trans movement is is all about. And he says things that are just so spot on because you can't you can't get the perspective unless you live that particular life. He says, if you, when you see these people, when you see these men with beards dressed up as women saying, I'm a trans female, I'm a biological female, it's got, he's got a really cool style too, just really, really cool. Just, it's not sharp, but it's very ironic kind of thing. And, and he'll say, well, first of all, you're delusional. You're not a real woman. I'm not a real man. And when the, the second I hear the second I hear that, I say this is somebody I could talk to. This is somebody who I who 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 deserves my respect. He says, I'm not a real I'm not a real man. I am a woman who has had some surgery and who's doing his best to to live her life looking like a man, but I'm not an actual man. Don't be ridiculous. That's absurd. And he says, if you can look at somebody and say that that is a man dressed as a woman or a woman trying to be a man, then he says, as an actual transsexual, he says, then you're not trying hard enough. You don't get it. If you, and, and, and in fact, if your entire purpose is to make people uncomfortable, that is the antithesis of what trans people want. Trans people, real trans people, he says, don't want to be seen as, as some weird sort of thing. They want to blend in. They want to fit in. And they want to... They want to make people comfortable, not uncomfortable. And I just thought, wow, you know, that is such a refreshing take on it. And, and for him to just come out and say, I, I, I do this because I have a serious mental illness. I'm a guy who has serious mental illnesses too. And I thought, is this really so hard, you know? And, and, I, and I love his take on everything. I, I, and I love not just what he says, I love how he says it. And the only time that he comes off to me as seeming more feminine than he's trying to do is when he does his salute at the end. Everything he's going to peace out, you know. And I want to say, let me just help you with that a little bit, buddy. A little, little bit, little bit stiffer in the elbow, a little bit stiffer in the arm, and 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 you'll you'll be golden. So, as we were talking about earlier. I like to live in a society where I disagree with people about things because sometimes they'll change my mind and I'll learn things. And and it constantly keeps you sharp and it constantly keeps you from getting lazy and, you know, all of that stuff. So I was, I was just so impressed. And every time I see one of the videos come out, I'm more, I'm smarter about the issue because this guy, certainly wouldn't call him a conservative, but he cannot stand the left, the woke. He just hates them, calls them out every time. The left, this is what the woke left has done to this movement. This is what woke left has done to everything. He says puberty, he starts telling you all the things that puberty blockers will do to you permanently. 
and and how disgraceful it is that people would be advocating for this and he's speaking as a transsexual by the way i haven't heard him say this but the reason we talk about transgender is because gender is a word now that has so many definitions it has no definition used to call them transsexuals up until a very recent very recently we were saying transsexual kids not transgender kids and the reason we changed it from transsexual to transgender is you can't be a transsexual until you're a sexual right that's why they changed the name because the entire idea of having even of, no, forget about even having the discussion this should not be in front of children they're not capable of handling it it just makes them confused there's no reason to be there you cannot talk about your sexuality until you have one and you can't have sexuality until you have puberty so these puberty blockers and talking to four-year-olds and stuff like this is just it's just it's it's evil and 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 it's sad you see these these green-haired 23 year old so-called trans teachers who don't know who they are or what they're doing and they're talking to to first graders so that the first graders will validate their lifestyle choices and it's just sad it's just got to stop man it's got to stop and and that is what i like about this marcus guy is he's not ashamed to say why he does what he did what he did he's not afraid to say it's it's an it's a relatively rare in fact it's quite rare mental condition i've got it and and that's that he, he says that virtually everybody you see you know is current trans you know these guys with beards and the makeup and stuff that is that is those people are not trans they're not transgender people transgender people wouldn't want you to know that they look funny transgender people would keep using the um men's room until no one could tell that they were a woman then they would go into the women's restroom carefully with no kids in there and 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 just you know try to sort it out so look whether you think whether you think morally or right or wrong this is what a democracy is and i don't mean democracy in the sense of this is what a republic is i shouldn't have said democracy this is what a free society is right free society is people living with other people that we don't agree with on everything and being okay with that agreeing to disagree that's what a free society is and i can live in a free society with somebody like that in fact i'm happy to live in a free society with somebody like that i'd like to interview this person and and what i would offer in return is i'm pretty sure because he's danish his english is impeccable but he's I'm pretty sure he's danish uh, and my response would be you've shed a lot of insight on this on this trans issue Loyola says they're exhibitionists i don't know who you're talking about but certainly the people with the beard and the and the, and the eyeshadow they're exhibitionists the thing that's so impressive to me about marcus is he doesn't want to be noticed or stand out in any way that makes sense to me but i i, I would be tempted to say listen in, in exchange for this i can i can tell you about guns man i can tell you about why we have guns you know why we have guns and why and why we believe in being armed i can i can talk about that I can talk about why we're against things like affirmative action. I can talk about all these conservative things because you continuously say I deal with reality. I do too. So anyway, um, uh, there you go. Now, uh, Exxon Petrola says, I've seen coworkers transition. They want you to know. I've Look, 
the reason that this guy had such an effect on me is because I had seen so many trans activists in your face. You will learn my pronouns and I'm a Gigi. And, 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 and to hear somebody say, this is insane. There are two sexes. That, that was just refreshing to me. By the way, I, don't, I haven't heard anybody else say, uh, say this argument either. Uh, non-binary, non-binary is the term now. I'm non-binary, I'm neither male nor female. Well, you are either one or the other. And I think it's like I was saying before with the argument about just give them, give them the stuff that they argue about just so you can put them up against the, the rocks where they cannot get out of it. So they will say that they're, that they're transgender, that they're a third gender and that it doesn't matter what parts they have. And I'd be willing to say for the sake of the argument, okay, let's agree it doesn't matter what parts you have. There are people who have hysterectomies and, 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 and castrations, all the rest of it. Let's just say it's not about genitalia. But it is about biology and it is about DNA. We can take a, we can take a sample from any of your fingernails and every single human on this planet will turn up, every, every single human on this planet will turn up with either XX chromosomes if they're female or XY chromosomes if they're male. And there's nothing in between. Now, if there was a YY, then you would be on solid ground. But there aren't any YY combinations. XX, XY, that's it. There's nothing else ever has been. And if you were telling me that you, were, that you had YY chromosomes, I would buy your argument 100%, but you don't. You don't. And everything else, oh yeah, well, Steve Whoop says he's an amosexual. I'm with you, brother. I think we should start a club. I think we should start a secret society and call it the Association of National People Who Like Rifles. Um, so, so there it is. And to, and, and to say things like, well, he's a, this is a cis woman. No, it's not a cis woman. It's a woman. By you trying to say that that's a cis woman, you're trying to say that your definition of trans woman and cis woman are equal, that they're, that they're equivalent terms and that they represent more or less equivalent segments of society. You know, that's a woman. You're a trans woman. She's not a cis woman. She's a woman. And I don't know how many, I don't know what the percentage of people, somebody will tell me in, in eight second delay because I got the hive mind going here. I don't know what the percentage of, of humans, Americans, what percentage of Americans have had appendectomies, but I'd be willing to bet you it is significant. In fact, I know it, it'd be way, way higher than it is the number of Americans who've had, who, who consider themselves to be transsexual. And the reason I bring that up is because we don't refer to, um, we don't refer to uh, that person as an unaltered woman, uh, or or an appendix uh, an appendix bearer, right? We just assume that most people have their appendixes, appendices, and if you have your appendix removed, that makes you a special subset of that person. But it doesn't make you something new, right? So we so so for me to agree with this, well, she's a cis woman. I would have to logically, I'd have to say she's a cis woman and she is an unaltered cis woman because she has her appendix, and and then on and on and on and on and on and on and on down the line of everything else that makes normal. Um, so no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to define normal people by adding an adjective to make them the opposite of this very small minority and any other very small minority. You're the minority. That's your problem, right? 
what they're trying to do is define a way normal. They hate it. They hate it. Now, what's funny about this is they hate being called normal, but everything that they do is about normalizing their status. Don't you find that weird? I find that very strange. People who are so determined that they not be called normal hate normies, hate the entire idea of normies. That's why they, that's why they do all the piercings and, and the hair. It's a giant rotating beacon on their head that says, look at me, I'm not normal. Well, you're not. You're not normal. What's the problem there? I'm abnormal in a number of ways. I'm abnormally tall. I'm not extremely abnormally tall. I'm not circus freak abnormally tall. 6'1 is taller than average, but it's not nutty tall. But that makes me abnormal. You know, it's a, a, a bunch of other ways that I'm abnormal. I'm abnormally smart. I'm abnormally good looking. I'm abnormally sexy. I'm abnormally famous. I'm all, all kinds of, 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 you know, burdens that I have to carry because I'm uh, because of all of the uh, abnormalities that I have. Um, so uh, this is curious. Uh, Eaters McSkeeters, which is a heck of a name, says, being a hermaphrodite, from what I've learned, has next to nothing to do with genetics, actually. But again, any eggs that meet as YY in the womb just can't grow. The material isn't correct or enough. X has to be there in combination, precisely. I'm assuming that that's the case. But yes, the reason I know that that must be the case is because there are no YY people. If there was, you'd be right. But there isn't. So you're wrong. All right. One more way, don't we? Hey, it's our friend Broke College student who I haven't seen for a while. Chris has got a great uh, defense of Buzz Aldrin, which I'm out of. I'm out of juice for, but if you could bring that one back, I'd like to read it because it's long. This one's long too. Broke college student. All right, I think we'll call this a night after this one. Um, I'm abnormally tired. Hello, Bill. Hello, broke college student. What do you think of quiet quitting? As I understand it, I'm in favor of it, by the way. I don't know what it is, but I'm in favor of it. Uh, as I understand it, it's when workers do the bare minimum to skate by in a job. The attitude is that why do extra work that's not being paid for? You could break this down into hourly versus salaried positions. Is it the whining of lazy youth or pushback against corporate slave drivers? Uh, adjacent to that, what do you think of the increasing involvement of employers in all aspects of employees' lives? Do you think it incentivizes too much reliance on the company? Do you think it hurts personal relationships by keeping people's lives too siloed? A few examples, health benefits that make the employees dependent on their company for more than a paycheck, thereby making it harder to walk away from a company. Number two, the replacement of familial, social, and church communities with work communities through corporate culture. Instead of going back to visit your friends, you go out on a work dinner. Instead of sitting down to have breakfast with your wife, you grab food at the company cafeteria or nearby coffee shop. Instead of going to the local gym, you use the fitness center provided by the company. Granted, this is more of a white-collared scenario, but it seems like it tries to make every aspect of your life more tied to the company. I believe that people should have a nice and healthy separation between their personal life and work. I'll get through all of these and I'll come back one by one. Number three, as a foreign example, Japan has a hard-working culture, but my understanding is that many marriages are not started or strained because of overwork from the men 60-plus hour a week. My father quit a job with primarily Japanese company for this reason. Four, increasing amounts of networking are arguably required 
through applications like LinkedIn. It can sometimes seem that there are more emphasis placed on networking than developing useful skills with the rise of online applications. The number of applications that are reviewed have ballooned. As I understand it, AI filters many applications with only those passing certain requirements being sent to a human to review. It seems like you need to game the system, so to speak. For my own sake, I value being a future father and husband much more than, a rise, than rising the corporate ladder. That's very noble of you, you loser. Uh, I want to do good work at my job, but I care much more about personal relationships. Thankfully, I have a serious girlfriend with similar outlooks. Okay, great. Let's have a let's have a a, a run at that. That was really remarkably uh, well done. So let's see what we can do with this. So the first part is, what do you think about quiet kidding? It quiet quitting. It's as I understand it, it's when workers do the bare minimum to skate by in a job. The attitude is why do extra work that's not being paid for? You could break this down into hourly versus salary positions. It's the whining of lazy youth or pushback against corporate slave drivers. Uh, first thing I'll say about, about doing the bare minimum is, in my experience, having had uh, jobs that I loved and jobs that I hated, there is nothing more exhausting than trying to look busy. I have found that that is the most stressful, high energy, activity that I have ever experienced in a work environment was trying to look like I'm doing something when I'm not. I just find that to be awful. I would much rather have something that was a regular project, even if it was a job I didn't like, than, than, to, than to stand around and um, and and try to act busy. But the main thing I'll say about that is, is that that is a crummy attitude, right? That is an adversarial attitude. And if you have an adversarial attitude towards your employer, then you are not going to get anywhere in life. I cannot, I, I, I frankly don't understand it. I really don't. But it is destructive to you. And, and I can give you a personal example that's why it's destructive to you, everybody else has heard it 200 times, so there's going to be a large sound of snoring and groaning throughout this land. But let me just get to the point of this, right? If you have a good attitude about work and you are, and you're, and rather than trying to figure out how you can do the minimum, if you try to figure out how to do the maximum, you would want to take that attitude to a place that you kind of wanted, wanted to work at. But if you're beginning, if you want to get, if you want to get ahead in life, just do this. When you get a job at McDonald's, right, you're starting at the bottom of the barrel. Get a job at McDonald's. If you want to get ahead in life and make money and have a house and be successful and buy nice things, listen carefully because it's astonishingly easy. If you're supposed to be there at 9 o'clock in the morning, get there at 8.15 or 8.30. If you're supposed to go home at 6, don't go home until 7. It doesn't matter whether the manager is there or not. It will, rap especially these days, will rapidly get back to them that you are doing more than you are being paid for. And if it becomes obvious to your employer that you are working harder than what you, than what you are expected to work, that person will look down and say, my God, I have found the golden nugget in the pan. This is the kind of thing that all of us look for all our lives. Somebody who's doing more work than they're paid for, I need to promote this person immediately. And that's exactly what will happen to you, right? Exactly what will happen to you. And you don't complain about it and you don't show off about it and you don't remind the boss about it. Just do it. Be there before you need to be there. Leave after you're supposed to leave. They will notice this. 
I was working, first time I was ever a post-production supervisor was on a show called um, Is.com. It was, a, I was, I'd been an editor. It was the first time I was ever the post-production supervisor. I had no idea what they did. I just said I could do it and figured it out. And I had to put together all of the stuff that had to be done, that had been done that day for the show and stuff that needed to be done the next day. So I had nobody, I had nobody to go home to. I had nothing really to go home to. So I just, what the hell, you know? I would be, I'd get there at nine o'clock in the morning and I often wouldn't leave until 10 or 11 at night. And the thing I do remember was I had an hour and a half drive home and at 11 at night, more times than I care to count, I remember thinking, I hope the car in front of me is going to my apartment because I honestly simply cannot. I'm so tired. I'm just going to follow those red lights in front of me. It was very dangerous. It was probably the most dangerous period of my life because I was really exhausted day after day. But the guy who owned the company, Finally came in one night, you know, and said, hey, Bill, how's it going? I said, oh, good to see you. And he said, um, I notice you're the last person out of here every day. I said, well, yeah, you know, it's, it's a, I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm grateful for the job. I was getting paid half again what I'd ever made before that. So I was grateful. And he never forgot it. And, and good things came out of that. And when I started at the Miami Planetarium, I went to a planetarium show. It blew my mind. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a planetarium because I grew up in the islands away from civilization. When I finally came in and saw this thing, I mean, I'd lived in Miami for, I don't know, at least a year, I guess, somewhere around a year, more than that. So I didn't see my first shit until 73. So I lived in Miami for three years on and off before I even went to planetarium. Didn't know there was such a thing. Went on a field trip, walked in there. Oh my God, I have to come back here tomorrow. And I did. I came back like the first weekend. And I wanted to keep coming back. I wanted to be inside those doors, not outside the doors. So I said, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll look, you need somebody take tickets? Yes. Well, I'll do that. And, and, and if people get sick, motion sick, I'll clean up the vomit. I'll do all of that stuff. Because I really, 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 really want to be here. And they said, well, we don't have any money to hire you, so just no. I said, well, look, I'm not doing any harm. I'll just volunteer. I just like being here. I just want to be here. I'll be back tomorrow. This was on a Saturday. The guy at the box office said, yeah, sure you will, kid. And there I was back the next day before they open, and I go in and I start taking tickets. And I'm making life easier for the console operators, right? Because they had to run the shows and they had to do all this other garbage. So I'm doing this garbage so they can go down to the snack bar and get themselves a tuna fish sandwich and a grape drink, as Doug Gagan would always have me go get for him. And, and it freed them up and it made me valuable. And I think on some level after, it didn't take long it didn't take long. It was, it was about a month. At the top end of a month, it might have been less than that. The people just basically said, the guy's working his tail off and he's doing a lot of good. You know, we don't have a budget. We never had a budget. We had to reuse recording tape. But, okay. So they paid me $2.10 an hour. And my first paycheck was $34. I've still got it. I've got it framed. And that meant that I had the keys to the building. I had the keys to be in there. I had to have the keys because I had opened the doors, let people in. And since I had the keys to be in this place, that meant that if I got there early or stayed late after, after several months of knowing how to do this without blowing up anything, I would just say, all right, everybody's going home. Okay, great, I got the keys, doors lock automatically. I think I'll just stay here for an hour or two or three and practice the shows. They're all done manually. It was just like, it was like 
playing sheet music. These projectors, this advanced this over here, freaking Munoz thing would never never work. And I get the crap out of the way. Fly the zoom in. I got I spent hours and hours and hours making because the zoom get the planets to fly is a, just a slide. It's a still, and it and we can make it bigger or smaller. We can move it left and right and up and down, and we can make it brighter and dimmer. And and by doing all of these things together here, right? You had to figure out a way to make this thing kind of like ah, just come in from like just out of nothing. It's really really big. Just practice, practice, practice. You got three knobs. You know, bigger, smaller, up and down, left and right, four knobs, and then brighter, dimmer, you know, all these other things. You had to make them go against the start level. It's practice, practice, practice. And I did cash the check. I have a photocopy of the check. Uh, <laughs> um, so I got practiced. And as I've said before, just a great story because it's a true story. I had been an usher for a year, maybe, but I lived there. And Guys who are 10 years older than me, guys like Phil Trick, who's in this thing, is my best friend in the whole world, the older brother I never had, they were there too. And they were there because they loved it too. So at the end of the day, we had shows at uh, 1, 2, 30, 4, and 8.30. And between the 4.30 and the 8.30 shows, we would usually just go out to New Hickory and get some barbecue. And so I'm hanging out with guys who are 10 years older than me who have degrees in electrical engineering and physics and biology and I'm learning all this stuff and I'm learning all this stuff from Jack Horkheimer who's exposing me to the music of Lotta Lenya and Court Vile and the first album I ever bought was Brandenburg Concertos and, and Phil showed me how to build a uh, well he actually built it I watched him build a, uh, uh, a Heathkit amplifier was that the Pro 4 AA or the AA14? One of them was headphones. I want to say it was the AA14. So I learned how to solder and all the rest of it, which is soldering is bloody hard. Soldering looks like it's a piece of cake. Soldering is impossible. Um, so uh, Action uh, Comtext says, Bill, the opposite of quiet quitting is making yourself as, as indispensable as possible. So there's a point to all this other than me wallowing in my own crapulence. Uh, broke college student. After about a year... We had the shows in trays. We had we had audio tapes of a different show. We had slides for a different show. Set with the audio and visual end. And so we would have a new show up, and we'd run that show every day. That was the show that we ran. One day, Jack Horkheimer comes in, and there's three or four of us at the console. It's after the end of a day. And he says, I've got some friends coming in, and I want to show them Long Journey of a Young God, which was the toughest show he ever wrote. But that show's been down for five months a year, something like that. So I was wondering if any of you guys can do the show for him, which meant that we would have to go up, replace all six of these slide projectors with the new slides, with the old slides, put the old tape on, get the old script out, and then run all of these things manually so that it, so that it manufactured, so that it reproduced what the show originally looked like. And, and he said, can you do it? And, and, and Doug said, I'm sorry, Jack, I got a, I got a commitment, you know, and, and, and Bill had something else to do. And none of them, they, they, could, they just couldn't make it. And I said, I could do it. And he, he gave me that look, man. You know, I know that I, I'll never forget that look. He gave me that that look like you're going to make an idiot out of me, aren't you? That kind of look, you know. And also a little bit of a maybe admiration just for having the guts to do it. But but he said it was that kind of like, you know. Uh, listen, termite. Uh, he didn't call me termite, but other individuals who shall remain nameless did because I had big buck teeth. They said um, these people are planetarium operators and I do not want to embarrass myself 
right? When you say you can do it, can you do it so that it looked like a public show back then? In other words, is this going to be something that looks like the show or is this going to be the mistake Arama because all of it is manual? And I said, I, I can do it, Jack. I, uh, well, how do you know you can do it? Because I've been practicing it. I practiced it a hundred times probably while it was running. It's a tough show, but I practice. I'm good at it. He said, yeah. I said, yeah. I, I can't tell you I won't make any mistakes, but if I do, probably won't know it, and I, and I won't make more than one or two. I've done it repeatedly. He said, all right. So I did it. So the guy came in, saw the show. The show was flawless. And when it was over and the lights came up, his friend left out in the lobby. Jack says, I'll be right with you. Came up to me and said, you're starting as a console operator tomorrow. You are now full. You are, you are now, your job is now to run planetarium shows. I was 14 years old. Okay. Now, I tell you this great story of, of true adventure because this is the antithesis of quietly quitting, right? I wanted to be there. I'm not saying I would have done the same thing at an insurance company because I want to be an insurance company, but I wanted to be there. So I knew where I wanted to be. I knew what I wanted to do. And then I went at it and I, and I didn't give up until I, until I got it. I volunteered at the place I wanted to be. And I kept volunteering until they paid me. And then, and then in my own time, not that I had a life to go to or anything, I'm not trying to claim that. But in my own time, I did much, much, much more than what I was being paid for because I had a feeling that someday I might get called to do this bigger job that I wanted. And so that's exactly what happened. And, and the story doesn't end there, by the way. That was at 14 years old. The next year, Jack would write the planetarium shows. He didn't, he, like any other artist, he went through a golden age where he just couldn't get it out fast enough. And then... Um, and then he started to slow down and he didn't want it. We, we would have to change the show pretty much every year. We'd have the main show, which would be Jack's show. And then there was a summer show because during the summer we would have buses come in and they came in at, at like 10 or 11 o'clock on Saturdays and Sundays. Right. So that was like a, that was like the, 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 the C, the C show, B or C show. And he's, I hear Jack, oh, do that goddamn summer show. And I said, you know, I could, I, I had something I'd, I'd like to write about Jack. He said, well, like what? He said, well, where we're supposed to be doing, oh, I remember now, summer constitutions, constellations, something, whatever. I said, yeah. And I said, I really like Delphinus. It's a, it's a, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny little converse, cons, constellation, but it looks like a dolphin. I said, I'd like to do a show about cetaceans. I'd like to do a show about, about dolphins. And that would give us a chance to point out all the constellations like we normally do, but it'd be different. And you do stuff that's really different. I just think it'd be kind of cool. He said, yeah, all right. Um, I cannot for the life of me remember what that show was called. <laughs> but I had uh, two guys on Y100 in Miami, Tanner in the morning and Jim Really, I want to say. Listened to them all the time. I thought they were great. I wrote a script where one of them was like a spaceship captain. The other one was like the ship's computer. Horkheimer called them up. It took them a while, but they just cut it. It didn't take them any time at all. Put this thing together, wrote the thing, and then they ran it. That was the first time in my life I was ever paid to be a writer. And if I hadn't, 
said I could do it, then I probably would, well, I certainly wouldn't be sitting here now, right? I got a chance to be a professor. I got paid money. I got paid hundreds of dollars to write a script for the Miami Space Transit Planetarium, which is, I almost said no longer with us. It is now an archaeological site. It's like, it's like an Inca pyramid. Uh, but all of the things that I did weren't given to me. And I don't know if anybody else has put it this way, but, but this is how I put it. When opportunity knocks, you better have your bags packed, right? You can't force the opportunity. You don't know when it's going to come. You don't have any control over when it's going to come, but it will come. And when it comes, you better know it and you better be ready to go. And, and so everything I did was preparing for the day that this thing was going to knock. I had my bags ready to go. I was ready to go. I could do it. Um, super chat from uh, Mobile Moto. Thank you very much. Saying everything about doing a tribute to Jack Horkheimer. You made the syndicated TV shows. Who made the syndicated TV shows I watched as a child? You know, that is a damn good idea. That is a really, 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 really good idea. I'd never thought about that. To my astonishment, when I did the second interview I did with, um, with Mike Rowe, we start recording. The first thing Mike Rowe asked me out of the gate, he says, listen, before I talk to you about all this other stuff, I want to talk about, I said, yeah, he said, you worked for Jack Horkheimer. I said, yeah. He said, I listened to him all the time. I was his biggest fan. I said, come on, Mike. He said, no, no, I listened to him every night. He made me feel good. Made me really, really feel good. He asked me all these questions about Horkheimer and and so, you, you know, like I said, you never know. I'm sitting there talking to Mike frickin' Rowe now about this. Now, uh, uh, he deserves it. Jack Horkheimer deserves a, a retrospective. Uh, there has been discussions that I haven't had time to follow up on, like everything else, about whether or not the Masters are still available. The Master, I know that um, Marusha Dark found online a couple of audio tracks for his two best shows, but they were, they were, pretty, they were pretty thin. Um, but he deserves it. And I'll tell you about, you know, I'll say this about Jack Corkheimer, the same thing I said to Mike Rowe about Jack Corkheimer. Jack and, and Phil Trick, if he's watching or he's gone home for the night, watch it later. He was without question the most intolerably awful person to work with that I have ever worked with or that I can imagine working with. Working with Jack Horkheimer was the most unpleasant experience of my life. I actually thought I was going to have to go on beta blockers when I was 14 or 15 because of how upset that guy would make me. Uh, sorry, here's a, uh, here's a uh, super chat uh, topic switch. Adderall was criminalized here in Japan, leaving me dumb and slow. I went on testosterone therapy and it reinvigorated me, not the same laser-like focus but the same enthusiasm. Thank you. For those of you not aware, one of the reasons I'm just so slow getting stuff out the door is that uh, uh, I'm 20 to 30 milligrams of Adderall for the last eight or nine years. And now suddenly it's not there anymore. That's nice to know that drugs just disappear. Um, anyway, so, so what I just said about Jack is 100% true. He had me hyperventilating. I had, they, had me, they had to get me a, 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 a paper bag to breathe in because he was so unbearable at times. I, Jack would write a, a new planetarium show. Jack was a public relations genius. He's a hell of a writer, not just about astronomy. He's just a good writer, really good writer. And, and he would 
make an he he'd invite the entire press the entire Miami press community for the big opening of his newest show. And Jack was kind of the showman thing, you know. So you know, he just everybody knew that a Jack that a Jack opening was going to be entertaining, and there was going to be good food there, and you know, uh, more alcohol than you could drink. So he'd say, "Well, we're going to open this on November fourth or whatever," and he'd finish the script on on November first. And then we had to put it together in a day or two. I can't tell you how many times I slept on the floor of that building with Phil and 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 Doug Gagan and Bill DeShong and all the rest of us and Herb Bradbury. We're sleeping there for two days to get the show done. And Phil's doing the audio track. I'm opaquing those goddamn codeless slides, which never could get right because the water wasn't cold enough, apparently. And then we put all this stuff into projectors and we're marking up the script. We hope we've got them in the right sequence. We're not sure. People are filing into the building. It's not just the people either. It is It is the press corps. It's all the people on TV in Miami. All of these people are walking in there and I'm looking in there and there's a room full of people and more people are coming in and they're putting the slide projectors up on the cove right now and they're putting them up there and I've got a script. I said, I hope I've got every, I hope I got every cue in here. I don't think I do. And I don't know that the slides are in the right order. We're just going to have to find out, right? And and I had not, for, for most of those, I hadn't had a chance to run through it once. I hadn't had a chance to one time run through the thing, ever. I just heard music, words, and I've got a little red piece of plastic with a light behind it that's illuminating a piece of paper, right? It's just sitting there. And I'm looking at this, and okay, six to five to six, six to five, one four, advance, advance. Keep remembering to advance those slides. Once you got into that habit, that was 90% of it out of the way. All right, this is coming in. So now I start. Now I read the script. It says Mars flies in from left to right. So I got Mars coming in, and 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 Horkheimer's right behind me. It's like he's 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 on my shoulders. Faster, faster! No, 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 no! That's like no, 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 slower, slower, slower. So okay, okay, now so okay, now just faster, 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 faster. Okay, now dump it, dump it, dump it, dump it, dump it, dump it. It's too loud. You know this 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 kind of thing. And I don't know where I found the nerve to do this, honestly, but somewhere in there, I was 15, 16 years old, and, and, and this had gone on for about four or five minutes on one of these openings. And I just said, Jack, you either leave, you either leave right now or I'm going. One of us is leaving here right now. I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't. I can't do my job. Either leave me alone or do it yourself. So he left me alone. But when, you, when you're driven to do the thing right and you and, and and you've got somebody constantly on you like that to make sure that you get it right it's just practically unbearable so all these horrible things that you said about jack Horgheimer, all true all true but he gave a 14 year old kid a chance to become planetarium console operator and and be the voice of the building he worked for he gave a 14 year old kid and a 15 year old kid a chance to get paid for to write shows for money. He gave gave me a chance to perform in front of the entire planetarium community, which was a three or four day kind of a, a thing. And I got all this praise and congratulations from, from people in the business, gave me a chance to go to, was it Bay Mountain Science Center in Tennessee, right in the three corners there. I spent two weeks in Tennessee running Child of the Universe, a long journey at that little planetarium, had a blast doing that, got a chance to do all these things. Go up to Spitz Space Systems Factory in in Pennsylvania, and I'm I get off the plane. I'm 16, you know. I had no idea what the hell I was doing, and I had great great friends, with uh, Phil and and Doug and and Bill, and and went out to dinner, and you know we go to New Hickory 
barbecue and I'd have the chicken and rib special and I'd say this is the best coleslaw I have ever had in my life. And Phil going, well, pretty good. I said, I love this. And, and Phil would say, no, it's a really good coleslaw. And I'd say, I bet I could eat a gallon of this. Just kind of offhandedly say that. And then Phil would he'd look up a little bit. What? I said, that's delicious. I could eat a gallon of this stuff. You want to bet? Yeah, I'll bet. Sure, I can eat a gallon of this stuff. Okay, so now we have entertainment for the evening. So they buy a gallon of coleslaw, and we go to the uh, Southern Crops Observatory, which is on top of the Museum of Science. We roll back the roof on these three telescopes. The sky is orange because of all the light pollution from Miami. We're looking at planets because planets hold up pretty well. And then we get out this gallon of coleslaw, and, and Phil, the sadistic bastard, has made a sign that says, you know, cup number one or something and and, I'm, and i've got the sign here he's taking a picture of me and i'm eating this gallon i'm eating this you know i'm eating a tenth of the coleslaw this is awesome this is gonna be a piece of cake come on trot it out man let's have number two so i eat the second one and by the time i got to about the third one i was like no i can't, <laughs> can't do this anymore. they planetarium's around building Front doors to the museum are here. Inner part of the planetarium's here, and this corridor that went around because people came in the back. If they come in through the front, all the light comes in, or all the door, all the dark leaks out. And so this curved area that went around a third of the dome or so was called the ambulatory, where people would walk in, and there were all these beautiful posters. And I wanted to go someplace for dinner, and they wanted to go someplace else. And they said, "Well, we can go here, but if we go there, we're only going to go there if you do somersaults all the way down the." Ambulatory. What? You know, just, you know, not acrobatics, just get down and just do somersaults. Okay, so I did. Those were great times. And, um, and, and, and Horkheimer gave me all of those opportunities. Horkheimer exposed me to the music of Lada Lenya and Court Vial and why it was important. The German cabaret music between the wars he he exposed me to old-time radio shows so by the time i was 15 16 i knew i knew about alan's alley and um and 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 all of this stuff you know all of it i just got this incredible education and he was responsible for that best thing horkheimer ever did for me ever 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 it's my favorite times, oh, uh, one of the best moments of my life, actually, in my uh, childhood, which was my teenhood, was was not filled with like terrific moments. But there was a guy there who came on later. His name was Art Barton, Arthur Barton. He was from Massachusetts, from Worcester. And Art was about five foot four high and about five foot six wide. He was one of these people who was almost unbelievably obese and art I, ed hart was a good guy but art had an attitude problem uh sorry uh rafael uh, Oliveira for a super chat says back in the good old days when a 14 year old was allowed to be just a regular dude yeah nowadays undoubtedly they'd call child protective services on my mom um but art had a real authority problem so when i wrote that first script he was above me at the time. He was a production coordinator. 
I wrote the script for the first show. He said, okay, give it to me and I'll, I'll turn it into Jack. Okay, who am I to, who am I to have a problem with the chain of command? So he's gone for a while and then he comes back and he brings me this, brings me back my script and in red pen, he's marked the changes he wants to make. And I don't think there was a sentence in that script that hadn't been red penned out. Just changing, you know, just, I would, I would write, this is one of the brightest stars in the night sky. And then he would write, it's one of the brightest stars you can see at night, right? That kind of thing, right? And every freaking paragraph was just marked up, marked up, marked up, marked up, marked up. And Art Barton wrote in what he wanted. And that made me so angry. I didn't even talk to him about it. I said, I said come with me. I, I, I don't know where I got the nerve for this either. But I had the script just covered with red, with red ink. And I, and I was storming at Jack's office. And I put it down on the table. And I said, did you approve these changes? He said, I haven't seen this before. I said, well, I, I gave this to Art to bring to you to approve for the show that, I, that, I, that I'm writing for you now. And, and Jack looked at it. And he looked up at me. And he looked at Art Barton. And, <laughs> I, can't, I don't know if I can get through this. He looked at Art Barton. And he said to him, don't you ever, ever touch a word that Bill writes. He's a writer, and you're not. Well, goddamn. You don't forget those things. Those things give you confidence. So, long uh, story for the, um, for the uh, quiet quitting. Yeah, you can quiet quit anything you want to, and you'll be a quiet loser for the rest of your life. I'm not saying you have to do this for an insurance company. I'm saying if you want to be happy, find a job that you want to do, or at least it's on a career path that you like. Get there early. Stay late. And if you see extra work that needs to be done and you can do it, do it. Even if it's not your responsibility, you will be noticed. And you, especially in this day and age, you will move so fast and you always show gratitude and respect. You never ask for it. Ever. If somebody says, you yeah, know, but seeing you do all this other stuff, do you think you could handle a larger job? I said, well, sir, I can certainly try. And, and if it turns out I'm not doing it right, if you'll tell me what I need to be doing, I will make my best effort to do it. I think I can do it, yes. Okay? So you, you won't be working at McDonald's long, and they'll be sad to see you go. And all the rest of the people who are quiet quitting will be sitting there trying to figure out how to make sure that nobody realizes that they haven't mopped the floor yet. And you've mopped the floor for them, but you are on your way and they're not. They're going to be your employees and you will be a self-made person and you will do what you want to do with your life and you'll get paid for it. I haven't been to work in 14 years. I didn't fall into this by accident, right? I learned how to get here. And I learned before I did this, I was working as an editor in Hollywood. That's not an easy job to get either. Got that job the exact same way too. So you gotta, gotta be willing to do the work. You gotta have the humility. You gotta have the commitment. And you gotta, you gotta prepare your, you gotta be ready for when the moment comes. You gotta have your bags packed when an opportunity knocks. All right, moving on, on the same question. Cause I really like broke college student. He's a member of, he, he's the member of uh, Gen Z who, who really gets it. Um, so uh, adjacent to that, uh, what do you think of the increasing involvement of employees, employers in all aspects of employees' lives? Do you think it incentives too much reliance on the company? Do you think it hurts personal relationships by pe keeping people too siloed? A few examples. Okay, so some of these examples are interesting. Health benefits that make the employees dependent on their company for more than a paycheck 
thereby making it harder to walk away from a company. The, the, um, the interdependence of your insurance status and your job status came as a result of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his left-wing politics. When the Depression was going on, Roosevelt decreed a, a, uh, a wage freeze. That meant that for any particular job, you, one company could not offer more money for that job than another company. What a great idea that is. So since if you wanted to hire the best people and leave the quiet quitters behind, you could not offer them more money. It was against the law. But you could offer them perks. And one of the perks you could offer them is, we'll pay half of your health insurance. And that became codified. And since companies pay into your insurance fund, there was a time when you simply couldn't move it. I remember there was a COBRA law or something that said you got to keep your insurance for a couple of years. I don't honestly know what the status is. Now I pay for my own health insurance. I, I, I've been living in a gig economy my entire adult life. But that's what, that's what caused it. And, and look, if they're paying part of your health insurance, part or all of your health insurance, you can't complain if that goes away when you leave. You are getting a benefit in addition to your salary, and as long as you work for them, then you get that benefit. If you don't, then you don't. That's not the company trying to screw up your life. That's just the company providing benefits for you that it doesn't really have to provide. It's trying to keep you. Uh, number two, the replacement of familiar social and church communities with work communities through corporate culture. Instead of going to visit your friends, you go out to a work dinner. Instead of sitting down to have breakfast with your wife, you grab food at the company cafeteria or nearby coffee shop. Instead of going back to the local gym, you use a fitness center provided by the company, uh, and so on. All of those things, an in-company a, a, in gym, an in-company cafeteria, uh, where they have breakfast either for free or, or for a charge. None of that stuff is designed to take you away from your house. All of that stuff is designed to make you want to stay working there. Like the health insurance thing, it is a, uh, it's a lure. It's an attraction. Uh, now, what we found from Twitter was that 90% of the people working for Twitter were there for the free food and the, and the back rubs and the, all the stuff paid for by the company, and they didn't do any work. So you can certainly take this too far. But I never saw those things as something designed to break you out of your family. I thought I just saw it as something that maybe got you out of the house earlier. I mean, got you back to the house earlier. That's, that's one of the reasons why it's in their interest to do that, by the way. If they're providing you, it takes you less time to eat lunch at the company than it does for you to go out and eat lunch and come back. So even if they're paying for the food, they're getting a little more work out of you. It's your choice. You don't have to do it, you know. And if you don't have to do it, then I don't see what the harm is. Same thing for a gym. Uh, an employee that works out, especially regularly, is worth more because they're likely to live longer. And, and furthermore, exercise will mean that they will have a better attitude. They'll be more alert. So again, that's a win-win situation. Companies putting out money for a corporate gym, okay. It's not designed to keep you away from the other gym. It's just designed to give you a chance to work out when you probably couldn't have before. That's in your interest and the company's interest too. Now we get to some stuff that's on the other side of the fence. 
Uh, for an example, Japan is a hardworking culture, but my understanding is that many marriages are not started or strained because of overwork from the man doing 60 plus hours a week. It's, it was often more than 80. <clears throat> my father quit a job with a primarily Japanese company for this reason. The Japanese work ethic for 30 years at least, I think has been unmatched by any country in the world, including the United States. And the reason that the Japanese worked so hard was because they are remarkably, astonishingly proud and honorable people who take their personal status and their commitments more seriously than any other country in the world that I can think of. And they had just had their asses handed to them. And so the quickest way for them to get self-respect was to, was to work their tails off and show the people that had defeated them and had been kind to them afterwards, by the way, that they weren't just a bunch of uneducated savages, that they were, in fact, extraordinarily capable, hardworking, honorable, decent people. Losing the war was the best thing that ever happened to Japan, by far. And, well, losing it to us, if they'd lost it to the Chinese, that would have been a different story. But, but that, that working man ethic was a product of the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s of, of young men who were either in the army or about to go into the army. Yes, yeah, shame, honor culture, as uh, J.B. Coulter says. They're people who, 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 had been, who had been humiliated on a scale that we cannot conceive of because we don't put that much value on it as they do. It is inconceivable, the psychological impact that losing that war had on those people. And they did, the, they did not only the right thing, they did the smart thing. They decided to, well, look, we can either be bitter about this and complain, in which case we'll just get further behind and more degraded and more dishonorable and hate ourselves more, or, or we can peacefully work ourselves back up into the respect of the people that beat us, and then, then we might be able to actually knock them off the perch through business, not through torpedoes. That's exactly what they did. Now, of course, that created a lot of prosperity, and that meant that the second generation didn't work as hard, and the third generation worked even less. Now the fourth generation doesn't leave the house. They've got, they've got uh, pillows in the shape of cartoon characters, and all they want to do is watch anime, and, and, and they don't, they're not interested in dating and all the rest of it. This is how societies collapse. They don't collapse because life is too hard. They collapse because life is too easy. Universally, every civilization that's ever fallen has fallen because things got too good, not because they got too bad. So putting in 60 plus hours, 80 plus hours is too much. Unless, look, you could say that they're putting in 60 hours to bring home, bring home the bacon, right? So they can bring home money for food and, 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 and bring home enough money for, you know, maybe a nicer house and so on. But in my opinion, that post-war generation wasn't working that hard to bring home the bacon. They were working that hard to bring home the honor. And... And that was of enormous value to everybody in that family. So they made they made a, a choice. They're gonna they're gonna be at the office, working themselves to death, rather than spending time with their kids. Everybody I know who's had kids and worked, I have not met one person ever who said that my great regret in life was that I spent too much time with my children. I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Haven't heard that ever. I have heard from everybody, including my father, that the short-sighted demands of day-to-day of -day business 
push you so far into extra work and 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 look and that's it's not just it's not just that it's not just that the company is asking you for more hours it's not that you're voluntarily putting in more hours why because you want to make life better for your family men are providers that's all they want to be you know they want a little respect for being providers if you ask a man how to make his family happy he will tell you the way i can make my family happier is by working on sunday so we can have money to take the kids to disney world that's not necessarily the truth Nevertheless, that's how it works. That's what that's what men see, that's what men value in themselves. So, is it possible to put in too much work? Absolutely. And virtually everybody I know, older than me, with that kind of work ethic, has regretted it. It's also possible to put in too little work, and spend too much time with your kids. This is why the traditional family works so well. There's always somebody at home for the kids to have as security. There's always mom there to physically watch out for them and help them with their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and all the rest of it. I'm not saying all moms have to stay at home. I'm just saying this is this is the benefit of a two-parent household. And dad is gone for most of the day, which means that when dad comes home, that's an event. And I can see how that would be. In fact, I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes. How mothers who spend their whole day taking care of kids our chopped liver when dad comes home. I'm, this is the traditional world that I grew up in. Daddy's home. Yeah, well, great. That's great. Oh, hi, dad. Uh, I was just the one, you know, cleaning your vomit off of your jacket, but, you know, whatever. Go ahead and, uh, you know, say hi to dad. But it worked. And, and because dad is gone, when he comes back, he's not just, hey, it's dad's come back. My dad never, ever once that I'm aware of ever. My dad used to go on business trips all the time. All the time he was gone on business trips. And every time he came back, every time he came back with toys, something. So we got to the point where we were really looking for dad to come home. I don't know how much of that was waiting for the toys or waiting for my dad, but the two things were definitely together. There's no question about that. And he was smart enough to realize that this on some level atones for the fact that he wasn't here. I wasn't here. I was gone for three days. I'm sorry about that. But look, here's, here's a Conestoga wagon. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Dad. So it is possible to work too much, and the Japanese worked too much. And I suspect one of the reasons they've got their generational problems that they have is because there were no fathers for two or three generations because they were working. Now, the nice thing about the reason why the reason why the heart of America has always been a farm and that and that the morality of America is farm-based America's heart is heart is in the is in the is in the private farm. And one of the reasons for that is because dad works his tail off all day, but he's not someplace else, right? He's working his tail off, but he comes in for lunch and then you help him, you know, slop the pigs. So you get that whole dynamic plus he's not, plus he's there, you know, he's there. And also on a farm, they don't have conniption fits about an eight-year-old learning how to drive a tractor because it's damn handy to have an eight-year-old drive a tractor if all you've got is an eight-year-old. So that's the working to our things. Here's number four. Um, increasing amount of networking arguably required through applications like LinkedIn. It can sometimes seem that there's more emphasis placed on networking and so on. And so the, the entire argument is, does networking pull you away from your family and so on? 
There's no question the world is more complex. There's no question that that we do more work, obviously, online, like I'm doing right now. This is work. Uh, but you have to ask yourself if the time it takes to fill in an, a LinkedIn application and then check the applications, does that actually take more time than going to the library or sending for newspapers so you can check the classified ads in Boston while you live in Chicago to see if there's a job there and then writing individual letters, handwritten individual letters to each one of the personnel directors at every one of those companies in order to find a better job or your next job. I don't find it to be something um, uh, something that is necessarily a time suck. Let's put it this way. Uh, I have never once felt like, wow, I've wasted so much of my time on the internet today doing useful work. I have many times thought, well, I wasted so much time on the internet today, but never thought I wasted so much useful, useful work. Problem with the internet is it's so bloody distracting. And these shorts, these YouTube shorts and these Instagram shorts, I had to delete Instagram because it's it's opium. It's 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 crack. I once I once I start, I can't stop. It's like, oh, and that's why they're so damn effective. They're they're like they're like. It's like a roll of lifesavers, right? Now oh, here comes the pineapple. I don't like the pineapple. Goodbye. Boom. Next one. And and it's just nothing but choice. So, look, on balance, I don't think any of the pathologies that the families are American families experiencing today is a result of what the corporation is imposing on them. I think it's got a lot more to do with the destruction of the traditional family and a lot to do with different expectations. You know, there's entire two generations, three generations of women now who are socialized to be ashamed of the fact that they're mothers. Now, listen, I'm 100% in favor of women being able to do anything that they're qualified to do. But I'm not in favor of demonizing motherhood. I think that, I think that individual women should have their own chance. And as I've talked about recently seeing more and more evidence of women who are in their 40s now looking into the TikTok mirror and saying, you know, they said, get a good job and you don't need a man and you can have your own house. Well, I have my own house. I've got a $400,000 a year job. I drive a really nice car. I come home every night and there's nobody there. So I don't think these social pathologies have anything to do really with how companies are structured. I think the things you all listed were designed to try and keep you there. And... Um, and I think that the effort, I think the company's been bending over backwards in order to make life pleasant for their employees and have overdone it so much that nobody wants to work anywhere anymore. You know, I, I said a few minutes ago, I haven't been to work in 14 years. But with that said, I did work for 40. And that was work. And it was oh, work. It's been a while now. I'm happy and proud to say, but I certainly remember, oh, thank God it's Friday. I still think, thank God it's Friday, but the reason I think, thank God it's Friday now is because I won't be so distracted when I go to work on Saturday. There, every now and then somebody somewhere will, will write, a, will capture in a phrase some enormous, enormous truth. It's just, it's all encapsulated in one little phrase. And uh, the one I'm thinking about right now is that um, 
uh, an entrepreneur is somebody who gives up a 40-hour work week so that they can work an 80-hour work week. I thought that's that's it. That's how it works. That's how it's that is how it goes. And and so much of this resentment towards rich people is because of the ratchet effect, right? In other words, somebody's working for a company. Company makes a hundred million dollars. All of the executives get a raise. They can get anything. That's not fair. Okay. On some level, it's not fair. It is fair. It's fair because you're not taking the risk. In other words. If you don't like the fact that they're getting a raise, if the company does well, how would you feel if you got a raise, proportional raise when the company did well? But if the company doesn't do well, you get a pay cut. And if the company goes out of business, you have to take money out of your own pocket to help pay the debts for the company. How would you feel about it then? All of this stuff is security versus freedom. And that is a, that's the balance of life. How much security do you want to buy at the cost of how much freedom? You can have 100% freedom and no security, and you can have 100% security and no freedom. Where do you want to put that uh, pin? And generally speaking, you'll find that as you start out in life, you're going to be given up a lot of freedom in exchange for security. And as you get older and older and older, you will gain more and more freedom and less and less security. Right now, I have a uh, company that I run. I am not a businessman. I do my best. Uh, that's a lot of freedom and zero security. And, and there are people who did not make that decision who expect to get paid on a regular basis. And if your company doesn't have enough money to pay them, then you go into your savings to pay them or your credit cards to pay them because that's the deal. Uh, and nobody appreciates that unless you run a business, you know. I've known a number of millionaires and every one of them were, were the most hardworking people. They were the first ones in, last ones out, even after they made their millions because that's what allowed them to make their millions in the first place. It's all a balance. So to close this uh, little um, uh, oration uh, and, and the show for the night, uh, my, my advice to youngins would be this. You can't be happy in, in life unless you know what it is you want to do. There are many things in life that make you happy. The right person will make you happy. Living where you want to live will make you happy. But in my mind, especially as a young person, the single most important thing is what do you want to do? Not what you have to do, what do you want to do? Everybody has something that they want to do. Now we're going to find out what kind of person you are. Because most people want to do things that are not easy to do. And it is much easier to not do those things than to do them. It's much easier to complain that you didn't get to do what you wanted to do because somebody else took it away from you because of your race or because of your whatever. It doesn't matter. It's much easier to not do something than it is to do something. And it's much easier to do the minimum than it is to do more than the minimum. Abraham Lincoln said, uh, yes, it's very difficult to pay off a large debt, but it's more difficult to pay off a larger one. Right? So what do you want to do? Uh, and, and really, that, that one question 
All the others come with strings attached. That one doesn't. What do you want to do? You got to know that if you're, if you're going to be happy. Let's say you want to be an astronaut. Okay, now you know what you want to do. So now the question is, what do I have to do in order to do what I want to do? What do I have to do in order to get paid to do what I want to do? To get paid to do what I love, which means I'm not really working. Well, if you want to be an astronaut, you're going to have to study a lot of stuff. You're going to have to study physics, astronomy, aerodynamics, did I mention physics, electrical engineering, engineering, you're going to have to do a massive work. And you're going to have to do that work with no guarantee that you're going to become an astronaut. You're going to have to do that work before they'll even look at you to see if you want to become an astronaut. You know why that is? It's because lots of people want to be astronauts, right? Lots of people. They don't have to have a wide net. They can take the best of the best. So if that's what you want to be, if you want to be an astronaut, you are going to have to work so hard, so long, and that's just to get the chance, right? But you can't do it unless you cannot. That Michael Jordan commercial is the best commercial I, I think I've ever seen. You know, I, I missed this many game-winning shots. I did this many. I mean, all of his errors in the course of his career. He says, I have failed again and again and again, and that's why I succeed. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So if you want to be an astronaut, do the kind of, on your own time, learn. Now, this is where the internet's your friend. This wasn't available before. You can just go online and go on YouTube and search for entire courses on astronomy and get a much more fun education about this than I did reading Donald Menzel's Guide to the Stars and Planets, although Field Guy, I love that book. So if you want to be an astronaut, Start working on the kind of things that astronauts know how to do because you're not even going to get a chance to apply to be an astronaut unless you have already decided to put that work in. Now, let's say you do all of the things that you want to do. You got to, That means a high grade point average. That means all of the studying. What does that actually mean in your life? It means that when your friends are going out drinking on Friday night, you don't go, or at least you don't go every week, right? It means when somebody's saying, hey, man, you want to come over? We're just, you know, we're going to just smoke some dope or we're going to do something less dopey, but we're going to, you know, we're going to, no, I can't, I can't do that. I got to get this done. Well, you're not getting paid for that. No, I'm not. And, and there's no guarantee you're going to be an astronaut. Nope. But there is a guarantee that I won't be if I don't. So you have to get all the things in line. But now we get to the point of this, right? This is the point. So let's say you do all the things that you need to do in order to be an astronaut. Does that mean you are going to become an astronaut? It does not mean that. Right? There are some things that happen in life that you have no control over. And those things are career enders with an asterisk. With an asterisk. If you want to be an NBA player and you end up being five foot eight, that dream is over. And if you don't realize that, you're just going to be miserable your entire life. You didn't get what you wanted. That dream is over because you are locked out of it. If you want to be an astronaut and you've got 2015 vision in one eye and 2025 vision in the other eye, you don't get to be an astronaut because you don't get to be a fighter pilot with uncorrected, unless you've got uncorrected 2020 vision and a number of other things too. You've got to know all the stuff you got to know and you got to have the grade point average, but sometimes things like that will just swoop in and that's it. I didn't know I had an eye problem until I took the eye test that failed me from my 12-year goal. Okay, so now you think, okay, well, then what's the point? Well, here's the point, right? So I wanted to be an astronaut, so I didn't get to be an astronaut. 
But when I think about what I wanted to do to be an astronaut, I thought I wanted to fly fighter jets. I wanted to fly high-performance jets. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, fly jets. Then I talked to some people who actually went to the Air Force Academy and did fly jets. This is years afterwards. And what they told me was, yeah, it's really cool. All the stuff you thought about flying jets that you thought was cool, would be cool, is cool. But you don't get to go out there and fly jets every day, number one. And number two, when you go out and fly jets, you don't get to just go fly jets, right? You have to go from here to there on a specific on a specific mission with specific wait, the, the restrictions on what you have to do are are very intense. And in order to do that, if you had gotten accepted, you have to live in military barracks and you have to eat at this commissary and you have to live in some god-awful place. You have to do all these horrible things that you don't want to do. You think it just means that somebody's giving you an F-16 that you just walk out to, but that's not how it works, man. I thought, well, that's interesting, you know. Maybe, maybe I didn't want to fly jets as much as I thought. Now we get to the point of the point of the point. Then you have to ask yourself, okay, so when you say you want to be an astronaut or you want to fly jets, what is it you really want? Probably what you want is you want to fly high-performance airplanes. That's probably what you want. And you think the only way to do that is to fly for the service. And by all means, that is about the only way that you can do it without having to do a whole bunch of other things as well. But what I realized was I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be a fighter pilot because I wanted to fly high-performance jets or high-performance airplanes. Well, guess what? I have flown high-performance airplanes, and I've flown airplanes that look as much like jets as I could afford. And it's good enough. It's good enough because they don't fly as fast as F-16s, but a, but a long easy with a, with a good engine on it is a 200-knot airplane. And it looks like a jet, and the propeller's behind you so you can pretend it's not there. And you could... They don't have many for sale anywhere. You get into one of those for probably forty-five, fifty thousand dollars That's an achievable sum of money. So you get 80%, 90% of what you wanted. And that's, for me, that was good enough. You know, There are L-39s out there that are actual jets. They're not F-16s, but they're pretty freaking close. And those babies are more expensive. They might be $300,000, and they're going to cost $1,000 an hour to operate or more. But if I really, really, really wanted to fly an L-39 more than anything in the world, I'd be flying one right now because that is also an achievable goal. So if you want to be an NBA player and you're 5'8", you will never play in the NBA, ever, ever. But what is it you really want? Do you want to play basketball? Is that what you want? Do you want to play basketball professionally? Because if that's what you want, there's probably a pathway to do that. You could probably either play in a league with other guys who are as good as you are and get the basketball out of your system, or you become a manager. You could become a team uh, doctor. There's any other things you can do to be in the basketball world. You don't have, you don't get a guarantee for the things you want to do, but you, but you do, and I'm not aware of any exceptions to this, you do there's no guarantee you're going to get 100% of what you want, but you're not going to like 100% of what you want, even if you got it. But there is a guarantee that you'll get 80% of what you want. That is achievable, and I think that doesn't depend on whatever your ambition is. If you want to fly jets and you don't get into the Air Force or the Navy or whatever, then 
you got to go out and start making some money so that you can buy a jet. Then you fly your own jet whenever the hell they want to. See what I'm saying? I, I think that's true for everybody. You want to you want to be a, a a jockey? If you're six foot three, you're not going to be a jockey. Why do you want to be a jockey? Is it because you like horse? Is it because you like riding a horse? Well, if you like riding a horse, you can ride a horse at six foot eight. Is it because you like racing? You can race at six foot eight. You just can't race horses. What is it you really, really want, right? So this is how life works. And anybody who tells you differently is lying to you. So kid, there's good news and bad news. The good news, the bad news first. The bad news is you don't get everything you want. And especially if you don't know what you want. The good news is if you use these techniques like getting there early and leaving late, you will get to 85% of what you want. I have no doubt about that. I've never seen that ever seen that fail. Yeah, Steve, uh, Steve Whoop says, get a bigger horse. Yeah. If you're 5'8", start a 5'8 basketball league. Because, see, here's the thing. Because if it turns out that you could play basketball with really good guys five nights a week, and that's not satisfying you, then your desire to get into the NBA is not a desire to play basketball. It's something else. Maybe it's a desire to be famous. Maybe it's a desire to be rich. But it's not a desire to be to play basketball. And, and here's the third last thing of the night, so we know it's the last thing of the night. If you want to come to Los Angeles, like so many millions of other people, and make it as a, as a movie star, your chances are are as close to zero as to be zero. But the people who come out here and stay out here are not out here to be movie stars. They're out here to be actors. They don't want to be movie stars. They'll take it. But they, what they really are is they want to be actors. C Danger C1988, uh, sorry, G Danger C1988 says, my goal is to get a comment read by Bill Whittle. Well, sir, your life and your goal in life is about to be met, my uh, my young friend. Pop it out there. I'm about done. Um, so if, if it turns out you don't want to be, if it turns out that playing basketball four nights a week, which you can do, is not meeting your goal of being in the NBA, what is it about the NBA that you want? Because it's not playing basketball. Because you can. You can play basketball. See how it works? And this isn't a bad thing. Just a lot of times we just see something that we think is what we want. We haven't really identified what it is. The actors that I love, the actors that are good actors, come out to be actors. And if you come to Los Angeles, the worst place to be in the world as an actor is Los Angeles. But the people that come out here to act do dinner theaters. They do experimental theaters. They do they do workshops. They, they get together on each other's property and, and in a garage they'll do plays they act and that makes them happy and it's not a guarantee you're going to be a movie star but you're not going to be a movie star unless you can act uh where'd we go with that so i'm going to just do this gonna this is like the make a wish foundation for uh, g danger c uh 1988 i hope it's something that that i can do does please just don't ask me to describe disney world to you uh because of your condition you know you get the idea I'm putting on my uh, awaiting cogitation spectacles because this is an opportunity that only comes once in a lifetime. Uh, G Danger C1988. 
Did Biden ever have goals while we're waiting? Yeah, Biden had goals. Biden wanted to get rich. Biden didn't want to work. All you have to do is work for six months, shake hands, kiss babies, get elected. Once you're elected, you have so much advantage as an incumbent that if you want to, you virtually possibly stay in there for the rest of your life. Goal achieved. Thanks, Bill. Hey, that's kind of zen. By, ans by, by reading the question, I answered the question. Yeah. Uh, I heard AOC is going to be worth $30 million for her two terms of public service as a House of Representatives representative. Funny how that works. Ain't it? Hey, that's a three-hour um, stress-free lunch. Uh, so how about that? That's something. Go Gators. Uh, this show is made possible by the members of the BillWhittle.com who, um, who uh, keep me doing this thing that I'm, this thing I do and uh, makes me uh, awful happy to be able to do it. Uh, every time I come in and do these stratosphere lounges, especially when I'm in like a just low energy mood or not feeling really good, it's like, oh, God, I'm going to make this 10 minutes to get out of here. And every time I do, I end up feeling much, much better. And so it is today. So thanks again for your membership. For those of you who are members, uh, for those of you who aren't, well, thanks for listening anyway. That's uh, that's something. And I suppose um, we will see you guys uh, probably Monday night, I reckon, for Stratosphere Studio yet again. Um, I don't think anything really needs to be added to that. You know, I think it pretty much covers it, don't you?